0: Shit. Memphis Bleak, we run in this rap shit. B Mac, we run this rap shit. Freeway, we run in this rap shit. it's Spock, we run this rap shit. Chris and Neek, we run this rap shit take over, the yeah. over, nigga, yeah. God MC, me, Jehovah, hey little soldier, you ain't ready for war, ROC too strong for y'all, it's like bringing a knife to a gunfight.
1: What's going on everybody, it's your boy Jordan,
2: and this is Desmond,
1: and welcome to episode 176 of Two Black Nerds,
0: yeah.
1: that's right, it's that time once again for us to bring you our opinions and hot takes on all things fandom, pop culture, and entertainment, as always, you can find Two Black Nerds wherever you get your podcasts, please make sure to hit that subscribe button and leave a safe friendly rating and comment to show your support and of course join in on the conversation each and every week by following us on twitter instagram and tiktok at two black nerds we appreciate that love y'all and let's not forget to mention we have merchandise that's available now at twoblacknerds.com go check out our two black nerds forever collection inspired by black panther wakanda forever we got t-shirts necks, hoodie stickers mugs and toe bags so go ahead and place those orders right now on today's show we'll be reviewing the sixth installment in the scream film series scream six also we'll be catching up with the first two episodes of season three of the mandalorian plus we'll review and recap the season one finale of the hbo original series the last of us but before we get to any and all of that we're kicking off this week's podcast with our thoughts and reactions. To the 95th Academy Awards, which took place this past Sunday, we were both, of course, eagerly anticipating Hollywood's biggest night. It was a historic night across the board, but even going into the Academy Awards this year, not only were we coming off of a pretty solid movie year in 2022, but there were just many storylines and narratives heading into this year's academy awards there were 16 first-time oscar nominees the most Mm. in history across the four acting categories there were also four asian nominated actors in the major acting categories another first this year as well angela bassett was also the first person to be nominated for a role in a movie based on marvel comics there were just many, many things heading into this year's Academy Awards on top of just a really solid movie, movie year in general. Many films that we liked across the board that I know have had us both excited about just the whole outcome of everything that was going to take place this past Sunday at the at the Oscar ceremony. But we're going to dive into the winners. We're going to dive into the production of the show and just how everything went. But I just want to check in with me with uh, with you, man. How, how are you generally feeling about everything you saw with this year's Oscars? How are, how are you feeling about the winners? How are you feeling about just all the things that took place this past Sunday?
2: Man, this was, to me, I think, a pretty feel-good showing for the Academy Awards, man. Um, it It's, it's very uh, uh, limited sometimes in the way in which I think I feel about the Academy Awards. I'm always excited for it. Don't get me wrong. But it's something about by the end of it left me feeling uh, a decent amount of fulfilled, I think, in some of the things that went down in the night. I got to give uh, a, a shout-out to Jimmy Kimmel who I think did a tremendous job. I think MC in the night. I think he got the crowd loose. <laughs> I think a lot of his jokes were landing. And I even think some of the jokes of his that didn't land, he knew they were – he kind of felt like they weren't going to land, and he moved on quickly. And I was like, oh, okay. That was fast. He just moved on. And I really appreciated that out uh, of Jimmy Kimmel, man. I thought, I thought he did, really did a tremendous job. But this was a night, I think, that made me feel, I think, proud again of being uh, – somebody who just loves film man that's really what the oscars set out to do of course we're here to 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 recognize and to give attribution to all these nominees and 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 look at this past year of film and celebrate that but also i think is uh examination at film itself right i think we love these award shows because we can look at a year uh uh, during the academy awards and be like this is how movies was at this time and this is why we love movies <laughs> uh, to that extent. And I think the night accomplished that. I think by the end of it, I was like, man, I love this stuff. I think by the end of it, I I, I felt again somewhat fulfilled. In, in in a lot of the awards that were given out and the things that's going on, of course, there's the 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 one hiccup for me, you know, that we have to talk about um, at some point in in, in the best supporting actress. But overall, man, I I enjoyed the show. I think. Uh, even the timing felt fine to me. Even the pacing felt fine to me. I didn't feel like it. W- I normally feel like, dang, the show is too long. For some reason, it was something about yesterday. I was like, I'm okay. <laughs> um, I don't, and, and and I think they did a good job there as well. It never really got too boring or dragged on either, man. But I I'm, I'm glad of, for the most part again where we ended up in in everything given out. And I'm um, uh, I think the 95th uh, Academy Awards show was a, a success in my eyes.
1: Yeah, certainly after watching the whole ceremony this past Sunday, it was just a testament to the fact that this is still one of my favorite things to watch on TV every single year. It's still one of those things that gets me emotional. I've been watching the Oscars since I was just a small young boy, and it's been something that I've regularly been attuned to doing. And of course, over these past few years, becoming even more invested into what the show is going to look like, what the winners are going to be. And I think across the board, there were a lot of things that, that turned out to be as expected, but... That's not always a bad thing. Sometimes, you know, the things that you expect going into certain ceremonies in certain particular years can actually be a positive thing. And I think in the case of this year, we saw – everything everywhere all at once absolutely just come in and dominate like no other film really has really in in the history of the Oscars but even beyond that there were just many things that that made me feel positive just about the direction of where the show was heading but also still some some questionable things and some things that we'll we'll talk about in our rundown and Mm -hmm. breakdown here but overall I think for the most part it kind of was a year to get back on the straight and narrow to get things back to a place of normalcy as much as possible just considering the past few years especially with the Academy making all sorts of changes and adjustments and I think to get back on just a regular playing field in which Mm -hmm. we're typically used to seeing this show this mostly was by the book and by the numbers which is not always a bad thing sometimes you just need those years which are just ordinary and normal in terms of just how the show runs and how it's produced and how they present it and I think that that was a really good decision on their part to just lean in that direction more so than anything especially considering the films themselves nominated this year there was enough heat and enough excitement around the films to where they could really speak for themselves you didn't have to do really crazy wild innovative of stuff with the show itself. Mm-hmm. I think the movies, for the most part, just kind of spoke for themselves over the course of the year. There were just some really monumental things that we saw. You spoke a lot about the production already, but I do want to kind of circle back to that. You know, the past couple of years, the Oscars have taken a few chances. Last year, the show was produced by Will Packer. The year before that, it was produced by Steven Soderbergh. So these are like TV and film producers coming in to, to produce the show. The 2021 ceremony is infamously, you know, dubbed the train station Oscars, and I think in hindsight probably <laughs> not the greatest show that we've and then last year was obviously hindered by the slap the infamous slap that took mm-hmm. place but there were also you know three hosts last year as opposed to our one person that we're typically used to we have regina hall amy schumer and wanda sykes but this year it was notable noticeable that they went back to a very traditional format the producers for this year were glenn we- glenn rice and, and ricky Kirshner. Um, they have produced numerous academy awards prior to this one they are live tv veterans they've produced 21 tony awards they've won countless amounts of emmys so this is just you <laughs> A tried and true formula to get back to how things used to be and of course with Jimmy Kimmel coming back into the fray to be the one host for this year they're also leaning into somebody who's a veteran of this who knows Mm -hmm. live TV who has hosted the Oscars before but Jimmy Kimmel hasn't hosted since the whole Moonlight debacle and La Mm -hmm. La Land debacle back in 2017 so again I think that they were mostly trying to get back to just what makes the Oscars the Oscars the more traditional format but what did you think about the production of the show how it ran the pacing of it also the performances you know those are often you know a big key component of what the what the actual production looks like when we see it on live tv but what were your thoughts just you know about the fact that they decided to get back to a more traditional version of what the show is mostly known as
2: I think you know that that decision to get back to normal was you know you kind of spoke to it as well the theme of the night Um, even Jimmy Kimmel you know was calling out like this is our return to movies, you know, kind of us uh uh his 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 uh comment that he made about Nicole Kidman, right, where the the, the AMC opening that we all uh, that we all have come to love though, but it was a commentary on like this woman is like it it she she that AMC opening low key symbolizes a moment in time now that makes it historical. It's a moment in time in which the movies were quote unquote dying, right? It's a moment in time in which people, you know, we the the pandemic prevented people from going to, to to the movies in these past couple years uh from the Academy Awards felt like that too. It was not only the movies f- felt covid, the Oscars had to feel covid as a result of that as well. And this 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 year really did feel like getting back to it. And I love that they did go back to the traditional format cuz it does feel like a okay, Skip all the other stuff right now. Let's just get back to what we know. <laughs> get back to what we're good at and uh again a regular show, one host, <laughs> you know what I mean? Every award being presented. Another important thing uh that 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 happened this year, but it 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 just it gave me a sense of um yeah, we're we're back at it and I think that is an important it was an important feeling uh for for the night for me. On top of that, I think it's cool how again even a movie like The Fablemans, which is a movie about movies, you know what I mean, is in contention in the night too, and now you can point at Steven Spielberg and everything is like, man, this really feels like we are back to normal, this really feels like legacy is in this room, it really feels like the Oscars are here to shine, man, so I really appreciated I think that aspect about the show. The performances, I loved for the most part, probably, honestly, one of my least favorite performances probably was the... Um, everything or everywhere all at once performance because um, I didn't know what was going on on the stage which we don't know what's going on in the movie either but something about the performance felt a little disconnected um, even if you notice like you watching that was like one of the one performances nobody stood up after <laughs> everyone was like what did we just see you know kind of type thing that was probably my least favorite but I think I really love the not to not to I really love Rihanna's performance I think she killed it I thought she sounded amazing the fact that she can sound like that still uh with with uh just live in general is amazing she's having a tremendous couple months first super bowl and now here she's really returning to form even as you know she continues uh, uh to go through a, a new pregnancy i really love that for her um i think she's killing it again the pacing of the show felt good a lot of the jokes were landing man these past couple of years of of the Academy Awards. As much as I love hosts and I love the people that they choose as hosts, there's a lot of jokes that just don't land or that feel like they're distasteful or they feel like they didn't belong there. Something about this year, something about the material that Jimmy Kimmel either created or was handed just felt right. And it felt like it, it, it was meant, I don't know, to be in the show in those ways. So I think he, he did fine. I appreciate um, everything he brought to the table yeah man i think I think it was a, a decent show overall. I really like the the feeling that we got um with this with this award show.
1: Yeah, even the past two years, COVID necessitated some changes, but I think that there was also just a panic because ratings were rapidly dropping year to year. Mm-hmm. And so I think the producers, ABC and the Academy, they, they were like, you know, we have to figure something out. We have to do something different. And last year they had that ridiculous fan voting category that was mm-hmm. in there. You had the Snyderverse bots take over and all of a sudden Ezra Miller's flash on. moment is like the winner of like the best fan moment. Again, the three hosts ordeal just didn't really work. The slap was just something that nobody could have foreseen. And then two years ago, the train station stuff. I mean, I I kind of appreciate them trying to just do something different and get out of the Dolby Theater. But just in hindsight, the whole structure of the show, the the way that they ended it with the best actor category going last, everybody thinking that Chadwick Boseman was going to posthumously win it. And then that was a whole flub, you know, so to get back to just the way that things were this year, felt good. Jimmy Kimmel, again, veteran, knows what he's doing, works in live TV all the time he knows his environment he knows his audience and this crowd he can deliver jokes in a very very funny hilarious way but the, that's also still relatable and not not veering too far into just like weird mm-hmm. territory exactly. and then I think overall with just like the pacing of the show last year that really controversial decision to remove certain categories from the bar- broadcast air th- or essentially hand them out before the show and then air them during the show which was just odd and, and, and just made no sense because last year's show still went over time it still ran over like by 12 minutes and so they they didn't really accomplish what they set out to do is to create a shorter broadcast and so academy ceo came in and said like we're gonna listen we know that that definitely drew the ire of a lot of people last year we're gonna put them back in smart decision and i think that the way that they handled some of the the duos and the pairings was a was Mm -hmm. a was a really intelligent way to sort of get around the issue of having one-by-one one category go, um, which would obviously take up more time. That does, however, have some drawbacks. There were some notable speeches in which mm. a couple of people yep. would get on stage and the second person would go up to talk and the music would cut on and they would take the camera away from them and so they they didn't have that moment to speak. So mm. there were a lot of, like, honestly cringeworthy, cringeworthy moments where that happened and I was like, oh, shit. Yeah, you, know, you, sure. you want that person to get that moment. But, you know, sometimes some really tough decisions do have to be made. Um, performances... I don't know really how I feel about performances at the Oscars anymore. I, I just I don't know if they really have a place here. It's not that they're bad, but it's just mm-hmm. one of those things where it feels like every year we look forward to them. But they always turn out to be like a B minus at best. It's it's mm-hmm. not going to be the Grammys. It's not going to be amazing, really, because I think a lot of the performers that get on stage are not really putting 1000 percent into the performance. Like they're doing they're doing something that's like decent, but I would see them in better scenarios and other venues and another yep. avenues. And Lady Gaga, I mean, she she gave a very, very stripped-down performance, but that was a last-minute decision. She, she had a place in the show, but the producers did not know whether or not she was going to show up. She's literally filming Joker 2 right now in L.A., so I think it was just a game-time decision. And so mm-hmm. there were just a lot of things, again, weren't perfect, but I think with just the cards that they were dealt, they kind of played the best hand that they had possible. I do want to talk about one moment that, you know, is interesting. Um, th- this obviously is aired on ABC every year. ABC is owned by the Walt Disney Company, and so there was a moment here where, the world premiere of the Little Mermaid trailer, the brand new trailer, was going to happen during the show. Now, when this was announced last week, I just assumed this was going to air during a, an ad break, like like most mm-hmm. trailers would. But this was actually presented as an in-show moment. They brought out Melissa McCarthy and Halle Bailey, both stars of the movie, to present the trailer and introduce this and actually dedicate Showtime to, to debuting this trailer. That didn't happen for any other movie. Again, I get it. It's ABC. It's a Walt Disney company. They're, they're going to have corporate synergy. I work for a corporation <laughs> that does this all the time. We're going to leverage every possible channel to promote something that's going to come out. But I just got to say, this was a this was pretty infuriating to me, just considering the fact that there were many times in the show where people got cut off during their speeches. And it's like, that's valuable mm-hmm. time that you took away from that to actually roll this out during the show. Now, if the trailer premiered at a commercial break, like I think we would be accustomed to seeing, no foul there. That That's mm-hmm. exactly what I expected to happen because they're going to buy the ad space that's going to be a thing. But to actually like take time out of the show to roll this trailer out, for a trailer that I honestly would say is not that great for me, it, it was just a weird decision overall, especially considering how time is just always a thing that we're going back to. What did you think about that moment and how it played out?
2: Yeah, when I, when I seen it, I was just, at first I was a little t- t- taken back because I was like, have we ever done this before in this capacity i don't think so i don't think they've <laughs> ever done like, this <laughs> i was like where is this coming from of course part of me was happy right that hallie bailey can be on stage and get her moment right to like everybody be like look everybody ariel is black i like I was, I was like okay at least that's something but at the same time if you're gonna do all this like you said take time away from other people's speeches if you're gonna I don't know. Just have this slot at the Academy Awards for a trailer. I feel like the trailer should have been bombed. You know what I'm saying? Like, I at least the trailer needs to be good if you're gonna actually make this decision. And I, I'm of the same mind too. I didn't really. There's things in the trailer. I'm like, eh. I don't. I don't really feel it that much. But I just have to agree with you. Like, I it just felt out of place to me. I I wasn't ready. I think for that in that way. And I think they could have done it, even maybe differently, like you said, maybe during a, a a commercial break, which what we're usually accustomed to. In what I was expecting, the way in which we get it, yeah, I just, especially a, a show that is known for going over time. Period. Like, of course, the 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 speeches and stuff, but a show that's known for going over time. But we're spending what at least five minutes, a couple minutes to talk, a couple minutes to show the trailer. We're spending at least five minutes to show this thing. Yeah, I don't know. I just feel like it's a maybe they were trying something new. I'll give them that, but it just didn't work. It didn't work.
1: One of the things that I think could really help create and generate more excitement around the academy awards is to debut more exclusive footage and trailers for upcoming movies like i don't mm-hmm. see any reason why other studios couldn't have a buy into this type of process like we see it with the super bowl how they purchase ad dollars and space to, to debut new trailers and that's the biggest audience on television on linear television so of course you're going to do that the academy's audience is like not even a quarter of that at this at this day mm-hmm. and age but still i think if you want to get people excited like let's dedicate that time to even other studios who have a Coming movies like we're still in March, like summer movie season is right around the corner. There could be opportunities to do that, but to dedicate it to one movie again, I know it's Disney, I get all of that, but it was just a weird thing to do in the middle of the show. Like it's just yeah. it's just something I wasn't expecting. So I, I don't mm-hmm. I don't know how I really felt about the decision. It was it wasn't something that I was particularly fond of, and I hope that they don't make this like a, a noticeable trend in in the coming years. But we should move on and talk about the winners because there is so many notable things that happened last night. So many big big key winners in all the categories. We did our. Predictions last week. So, rolling into this week, I think by and large, we mostly got a lot of these things right. But of course, there mm-hmm. were a few things that, that were changing over the course of the show. Some momentum shifted a, a, as we progressed throughout the evening. But everything, everywhere, all at once was the most awarded film of the night it walked away with a grand total of seven trophies including best mm. picture best director best actress best supporting actress best supporting actor best original screenplay and best film editing all quiet on the western front is next with four wins in some big categories the Will had two wins and then Other films that walked away with some Oscars include Top Gun Maverick, Avatar The Way of Water, Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, Women Talking, and RRR. But let's circle back to Everything Everywhere All at Once again, because this performance by this movie, I mean, we knew Mm -hmm. that it was going to come in and and have a huge showing. But when you really put it into context of this year, but also just the history of the Academy it's, it's just extremely unprecedented, what we yeah. saw out of this movie last night. It's the most awarded Best Picture winner since Slumdog Millionaire all the way back in 2009. But what's notice, noticeably different between Slumdog Millionaire and everything, everywhere, all at once, Slumdog Millionaire won no acting awards because it wasn't nominated for any acting awards. And so all of its stuff that it's won was mostly below-the-line categories. Mm-hmm. Lord of the Rings Return of the King, very similar situation back in 2004 went 11 for 11 but there were no acting nominations in that here with everything everywhere all at once we have it winning in most most of the above the line categories most of the major categories now at the oscars you have the big five you have best picture best director best screenplay either original or adapted best Mm -hmm. lead actor and best lead actress now only three movies in history have ever won all the big five if first it first occurred with It Happened with, in One Night with in 1935. The second time it happened with One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest in mm-hmm. 1976. And the third time, and the most recent time that it happened, was Silence of the Lambs in 1992. So mm. Everything, Everywhere, All at Once didn't have a lead actor, so it could not be considered for that category, and it could not win the Big Five, quote-unquote. But again, it did win six out of the seven above-the-line categories, which is the most out of wow. any film ever. So what we saw is by no exaggeration one of the most dominant performances in Oscars history by any movie ever. That That mm-hmm. is not hyperbole to say. What do you think about just everything that occurred, the fact that they just came in and just dominated so single-handedly across the night, even though I think in the middle of it, you saw All Quiet on the Western Front start to pick up a lot of awards. Oh, and they were it did. And they were in succession. <laughs> they were kind of back-to-back. Back. And for a I'm second low. there, I'm thinking like, mm-hmm. oh, oh, wait a second. We might, we might be in for some surprises. But then by the mm-hmm. end of the night, things reverted back into the playing field of everything everywhere. What did you think about just the whole performance of that movie yesterday?
2: Man, what a time. What a time. What a time to... I think celebrate everything everywhere all at once, man. This is such a a, a momentous time in history. It really is. You just said it. The, all the reasons why this this film should be celebrated, man. This has never been done. I think you know before, especially not a movie of this caliber. I think that's the other thing that's so interesting. This movie is very different from one that flew over the cuckoo's nest. You know what I'm saying? This movie is very different from those other films where it's almost like it's almost like the history presented itself in the Academy was like, we can't ignore this. You know what I'm saying? It's almost like it had to happen in some ways. The 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 energy, man, of this film was just so grandiose and so strong coming into this award show that I think what's very interesting about Everything Everywhere All At Once is as much as we all wanted this film to perform well, I bet you almost everybody who made predictions like we did was weary that maybe it wouldn't go down the way it did last night you know what i mean i think a lot of us were like we really love this movie this movie also feels like it should probably get movie of the year but the nature of this film a lot of we kind of spoke about it in our predictions episode where a lot of older folks don't really like this movie it's a lot of older people in the academy this film is also asian heavy the academy also don't mess with Asian anything that much either, and so it was it, it was such a, a a momentous night because all of the barriers that it continued to break, like you said, in the middle of the show, all all quiet on the western front. I was like, uh oh, this thing, <laughs> it was a little scared, man. And then you, it really, you know, it, a lot of times it does come down to those screenplays. And as soon as best original screenplay, uh, uh, everything, everything, all at once, won, I exhaled a little bit. Cause that's when I felt like, okay, I think they have the night. And really, from then on out, it was like WWW, and it, it, it made me happy. But it's scary though, because we also know the Academy loves war films. <laughs> they do. They just do. All Quiet on the Western Front, 1917, Saving Private right Ra- There's so many war movies embedded within the Academy Awards that it was it, it it just made sense to be afraid. So it it was a scary night. I was I, I was I, I'll I'll put it like that. And I think uh we all had our reservations coming into it but it's crazy to see this film perform this way given even given when it first came out the movie came out you 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 potted about it and was like okay yeah this movie's pretty dope this movie's amazing days you're gonna love it i came out the theater and was like instantly five stars this movie is ridiculous i love it but there's I hate that there's so much reservation in me that was like, ooh, I don't know about Academy Award run. And I think and, and I think I love how wrong that feeling is now. I love how we have flipped the script. And this movie is one of the most celebrated. This movie is literally it it, it has checkmarked legends like Quan, like Michelle Yeoh, it has awarded the Daniels for going out and doing something different and doing something meaningful and monumental. And yeah, man, I think it was just a good, it was a cool thing I think to be a part of in watching that night, but it was definitely nerve inducing.
1: So literally one year ago, everything, everywhere, all at once premiered at the South by Southwest film festival. And one year ago, I reviewed the movie on last year's post-Oscars podcast that we did. So the show that we're literally recording now, the same <laughs> show last year was where I reviewed first Everything Everywhere All at Once. And to come here a year later and to see the performance of this movie, it's, it's quite startling, again, because we've just never really seen anything like this in the modern era. It just does not happen anymore. Mm-hmm. And this is probably... And again, this is no exaggeration, no hyperbole when I say this. I think that this is probably the most audacious, weird... An improbable best picture winner that, that we've ever seen out of the Academy Awards. Like, I we're agree. talking about a movie that's an immigrant story. There's mm-hmm. Matrix, Wong Kar Wai influences. There, there's hot dog fingers and butt plugs. There's <laughs> Ratatouille references. Like, it's just the most unconventional thing that we've seen steamroll across all awards bodies, all guilds, mm-hmm. all critics awards just for the past few months. It's just been pretty much unchallenged in almost every regard. And I think for it to finally receive all of this acknowledgement on the biggest stage possible in Hollywood, it just cements, it just cements the movie as, as a testament to the fact that I think we are now in a place where a large majority of the Academy, of course not everybody, but a large majority of them are ready and willing to accept these really audacious, weird projects. I don't think it'll necessarily become the norm, but when you have a film like this that is just so undeniable, It's hard to argue against it you know it Mm -hmm. like you said it name checks everything it won over critics it won over audiences It became the highest grossing a24 movie ever it's the highest reviewed movie on Letterboxd in history like it just it does everything that it needs to do so you just can't look at the movie and say like well we we can't give it anything like that's just not going to be possible and it's not going to happen and for it to stick around for a year. I mean, I, I just, you know, I think a year ago I was I was very hesitant to, to start talking about Oscars coverage and, and what it could possibly do in award season, because we don't see movies stick around that long and stick around in the public consciousness. But it did. Mm-hmm. They, they they kept the movie in theaters for, for a year. A24 supported a, a theatrical run literally for up to a year. And so the fact that they were able to, to, to you know, bring all that together in, in a package Again, I think it just made it undeniable and made it one of those things that that we couldn't really question by the time we we approached the the award ceremony this past Sunday. How great was it to see Harrison Ford literally be on stage to present the award to Kihi Kwan? A full circle moment. Kihi Kwan, obviously, his first role was in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom all the way back in 1984. The guy's story is just ridiculous this comeback story ridiculous. it had all the narratives and i think that's another reason why this movie performed so well just because of all the narratives behind it the, the, the yep. oscars is largely about storylines like what are the stories behind the movies mm-hmm. no no movie had better stories than everything everywhere all at once and so you saw these other big wins in big categories i do want to just quickly talk about the the acting categories we saw mm-hmm. michelle yo pick up a best actress win in, in this category when. Just a couple of months ago, I think people heavily favored Kate Blanchett, even up Mm -hmm. until the show itself happened. And then when you look at those other categories, Best Supporting Actor, Kihi Kwan, he was largely the favorite for the past few weeks. I mean, there was really no no viable threat to him winning that award. And then Jamie Lee Curtis actually coming through with the win in Best Supporting Actress, which for a long time there, there was a lot of conversation back and forth about Angela Bassett or Carrie Condon and what that's going to look like. I think the SAG Awards As people Mm -hmm. who pay attention to the precursor awards, we kind of knew like, well, this might not be as much of a shoe in as we initially thought. I think more general audiences probably figured this would be the crowning achievement for Angela Bassett. It it did not turn out to be that way. What did you think about the acting categories and just how they they picked up so many different trophies across those categories?
2: Man, uh, shout out to Michelle. You know, what's funny about our predictions this year if I was like less cute with my predictions <laughs> and a little bit more of like who I wanted to win, I probably would have got more. I think by the end of the show, I went sixteen for twenty three. Um, and Michelle, yo, winning is one that I didn't have. Although I wanted her to win, I just thought the Academy was going to Academy. You know, I I, I did have everything all everywhere all at once, winning. But I was like, there's no way they give this woman the the the, the best actress award too, and then they do, and I was like, oh man. I was wrong, but I love that I was wrong. You know what I mean? I absolutely love that I was wrong there, man. I'm I love that Michelle Yo has a chance, you know, to be celebrated here. Um, Quan, man, like you said, that this is about storylines, and I, really both of them, Quan and Michelle Yo, both have stories that is just amazing. Quan also has probably the greatest speeches in like. Award history. (laughs) I mean, it's just constantly over and over. Every time he won, it was like, dang, man, you're not supposed to make me feel this emotional. (laughs) Like, why am I emotional every time? Like they should take the
1: manuscripts and like publish them (laughs) so I can just like go back and read them for all time.
2: No, really though, man. He really is one of the best award speech givers, like ever. Because it's more than it's not even all about what he's saying. It's about the passion behind what he's saying. It's about knowing the story in which he comes from about what he's saying, man. It really means I think everything in the world, just as it does, like you said, of him hugging Harrison Ford, or getting an award from Harrison Ford, is like, yeah, that's ten out of ten storytelling right there. Like the Oscars did, that's a that's a story beat in a movie it's great that producing. we just watched. It's great for like they could low key make uh, a documentary right now, or even uh, uh, a a drama about Quan's life. In the ending, happened last night. That's the end of the movie. Like he gets his Oscar, he hugs Harrison Ford. The end. They can make a movie of that. They really could, and it would be good. Um, so I, I, I really, uh, man, Quan, man, what a, what an amazing human being. I really love that about him. Woo. I have a lot to say, of course, about, um, <laughs> this best supporting actress you know what? Man. Before you do, cause we, we, we should talk about that. We, we, we should, gotta talk we, about we it. We gotta talk about that. I just want to quickly
1: just mention Michelle. Yo. So what was, what was amazing about that moment to see her win was the fact that, Halle Berry was there to present the awards to her Best mm-hmm. Actors, which they were always going to have to find somebody else to do it because Will Smith could not come back this year. The tradition typically is to have last year's winners present this year's winners, but in the opposite mm-hmm. gender category. So Will Smith would have presented Best Actor or Best Actress, excuse me, but he's obviously banned. They brought back Halle Berry, which, again, great producing to take really the only other woman of color to ever win in this category to present it mm-hmm. to the next winner of color. That is both equally a exciting thing to see that Michelle Yeoh is now joining that class, but also it's infuriating that, that only two women of color in 95 years have won Best Actress. That is mm. That's bad. That's not a great thing, right? But what's cool to me that I don't think I hear a lot of people pointing out Halle Berry and Michelle Yeoh are both Bond girls and now they have Best Actress wins. Halle That's Berry true. was in Die Another Day. Michelle Yeoh was in Tomorrow Never Dies and so just to see That's the of bond come come full circle again like this was was great. That's, again, stuff that you just can't really write. That takes a great producing team to recognize like these big moments. Um, but also, you know, A24 as a studio won in every acting category and we'll talk about Brendan Fraser but Woo. even though they did not have Everything Everywhere All at Once did not have a lead actor in contention, Brendan Fraser was in the whale ended up winning and was also an a24 movie again this just this this stuff just doesn't happen but let's let's talk about best supporting actress because again that was another category that we we certainly had high hopes for especially considering angela bassett and her presence there the -hmm. fact that she has been snubbed in the past before and was up in contention for best actress for what's love got to do with it famously did not win that award that year and coming into this award season i think the narrative for the first couple of months especially after the golden globes was like well, wait a second, Angela Bassett has a lot of momentum. This really might Mm -hmm. be her crowning achievement. It feels like it's time. She's had a 30-plus year career. But over the past few weeks, there's been another narrative developing around Jamie Lee Curtis, who's also been in Hollywood for a very long time, a 47-plus year career career. Comes from Hollywood royalty. She has spoken a lot about her her heritage and her family lineage in Hollywood, and how that's you know certainly impacted her. Both of her parents being actors who have now passed on. And then we saw just a couple of weeks ago at the Screen Actors Guild Awards that she did end up winning the Best Supporting Actress award at that at that award show. Now we we talked about it in our predictions. That does not always guarantee a win at this award show, but right. there is a lot of overlap. A lot of people in the Academy, of course, are actors and voting on this particular category. And so it seemed like momentum was in her direction and ultimately she did walk away with it. But, you know, just thinking about that and also thinking about all the other people in the category, Carrie Condon, Stephanie shu what do you think about the fact Jamie Lee Curtis ended up walking away with a trophy last night?
2: First and foremost, I love Jamie Lee Curtis. I just, what a, what a tremendous, I think, talent. And she is one of like those low key unproblematic white women that like, white people mess with you know what i mean it's like freaky friday we all like <laughs> for some reason if you really like freaky friday of course the uh the halloween film something also interesting about jamie lee curtis was she she is a woman who has been typecast you know for the most part she was known as a scream queen for so long and and, and i think she's i think she's even talked about this but that even that has hindered i think the roles in which she's been given in recent years right and so even the fact that she took a chance on a small film with the Daniels in in something like Everything Everywhere All At Once, I think she should be commended for. And congratulations to her. I have nothing against her at all. That being said, she would have been like my fourth pick in the category, which is one of my first like (laughs) gripes with it. Just the merit of it. Of course, we know we, we talked about it. This show isn't all about merit. But in that she, to me, didn't have enough to do with everything, everywhere, all at once to warrant this award. She just didn't. Like, Stephanie Shu did more than her. Shu. Um, I even like Hong Chow's performance, I think, better. And she meant more to the movie and the well than Jamie Lee Curtis meant to everything, everywhere, all at once. And I think, by the, by the same token that we always talk about makeup calls and things like that, I love that she got an award. I do. Because this is like one of those things where like, She is Hollywood royalty. She is just a really good actress. She has been in a lot of movies that we love or a lot of genre films that we love. But it also, I don't know, the night felt weird when she won because it definitely felt like we we know the Precursor Awards, it means something coming into this. And it really felt like that SGA turned things. It really did feel like that SGA, that SAG Award turn things a little bit in what the narrative could have been. And I think when it comes to mainly the black population, right there, there were other people who are rooting for Angela Bassett to win this award. I think there is a, a right to at least be sad, right? People are like, Oh, well, Angela Bassett should have at least clapped when she won the Angela Bassett. This is, these are the Oscars, right? And I think when you turn, when you talk about the Oscars, other awards f- are fine, right? But when you die and when you're no longer here on the earth, your legacy, they don't talk about, oh, man, that that guy won 10 Golden Globes. They don't say that. They say, no, he won three Oscars. And that's what made him great. And I think, you know, coming into this, uh, a lot of us, again, uh, from what I've seen, again, black population, a lot of us are rooting for Angela Bassett because, one, she had already been passed up once. That happened once. She probably should have won for What's Love Got To Do With It. When you really look at look at that, right? Not only that, but there's another part to it that people don't talk about. After she was nominated for that, she never... It took her a long time to get a role in which she could live up to the caliber to get nominated again. Does that make sense? For a very long time. The same thing actually happened to Holly Berry. After she won Monster's Ball, there was... A long period of time nobody was giving holly berry any any work after monsters ball she gets catwoman that's the thing that she gets (laughs) and it's because it's, it's like this thing that happens where it just feels like black women after they get nominated now they're in like this bubble where you can't put them in anything or at least they're not getting the work that they deserve in order to to get back. They don't get the chance to get back to the Oscars because they're not getting that work. There's a reason Meryl Streep, Charlize Theron, Blanchett. all these people, Kate Blanchett, there's a reason all these white women are just out here at the Oscars all the time because they're getting the job. Holly Berry not getting the job. Angela Bassett not getting the job. And now it feels like how Angela Bassett finally got that opportunity. And I think that's what makes people sad. That's what makes us hurt because we just felt like now that she had this opportunity to come by, get this award, and they were like, and eh, you not only lost nothing against the Jamie Lee Curtis, you not only lost to this white woman, to me, personally, you lost to this woman who, merit-wise, again, this is a person, this is opinion, was probably like fourth on the list to get the award. Maybe if Stephanie Shu won, I would feel different. Maybe if even Hong Chow won, I would feel different. But it's something about Jamie Lee Curtis getting that award that, I don't know, didn't resonate with a lot of with a lot of folks who was rooting for Angela Bassett. People are going to lose. It happens all the time. But for it to happen again <laughs> and in this way and and my last point is what makes me afraid is. Knowing history, the way it goes, knowing that this is only one, the second time people, you know, a, a lot of black women don't get nominated for this award. I'm afraid that this was her last chance. I could be wrong about that. God forbid. I hope I am wrong. I hope Angela Bassett comes out of this thing. Somebody cast her in an Oscar worthy performance. But history tells me that after this, this woman, no one will give her the role that is needed to where she feel like she can perform enough to get back to an Oscar nomination for her to win that award again. And I'm sure they felt the same way about Jamie Lee Curtis and they gave it to her. But I don't think Jamie Lee Curtis was passed up once either. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's just, I don't know. It's something about it that feels weird. Again, love Jamie Lee Curtis, love Angela Bassett, but I had to get that off my chest because it feels weird. It does. As much as I love that she won that award, it still feels a little bit, I still feel a little bit robbed that Angela Bassett didn't, didn't, didn't walk out with that award.
1: Yeah, you know, there's a lot you said that I'm that I agree with. And I think in particular, as it relates to Jamie Lee Curtis, I, I feel the exact same. I've always enjoyed Jamie Lee Curtis. She's one of the first actresses that I've actively known. And, and she's been a part of the Halloween franchise. And the original Halloween is one of the most one of the films that I've rewatched the most out of anything ever. You know, so I've been following her for, for just an incredibly long time. It's great to see her finally get that that acknowledgement. But the Academy's lack of acknowledgement for her throughout her entire career has now come back to bite somebody else in the ass, you know, at the, at the mm-hmm. same time. And I think with Angela Absolutely. Bassett, we have a case of, and I've been seeing this, this conversation bubble up across the internet, different pundits and, 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 and people that are very connected to the situation. And I actually believe that it's a thing. Um, and, and it's, it's also in addition to everything you said about just Angela Bassett and, and her place in, in history with the Academy and her being a black woman and having this opportunity to really have this moment to step up to the plate and potentially win, I think what we have seen over the past couple of months, one of the one of the key storylines that that we already mentioned is the fact that she she was the first actor in a Marvel movie to get nominated for Mm. any sort of acting performance in these films. And she won a couple of awards. She won the Golden Globe. And so that was starting to become a thing like, oh, wow, maybe Marvel films are finally starting to get acknowledgement from 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 an acting standpoint. We've seen some of the technical stuff come come to fruition, but now Mm -hmm. like performances can also rise to the top as well. And I feel like that, and once Academy members started hearing that actively, mm. they were like, oh, well, wait a second, now you just reminded me that she's in a Marvel movie. It became less about the fact that, like, Black Panther Wakanda Forever... And the Black Panther franchise has typically kind of transcended what it means to be a quote-unquote Marvel movie, and I think people started to revert back to that implicit bias that they have against genre, mostly against Marvel superhero films. Like, that's obviously the dominant force in Hollywood. We see that they largely get ignored every year at the Academy Awards. I think that that is a factor. I don't think it's necessarily the only factor, but I do think that that's a thing. Also, and this is even more troubling, but it should be stated, the lack of of presence that we saw in the best actress category a separate category out of viola davis and danielle deadweiler and the fact Mm. that that created so much conversation there was so much heat around that with the whole andrea risebrill thing again that's a different category right but if you if you tap into some of these anonymous oscar ballots which i don't encourage people to do because they they're they're trash but if you tap into just some of the thinking on why people vote or don't vote for certain actors or certain categories or whatever the case may be it's the most nonsensical ridiculous shit ever and you Mm -hmm. will see things like oh well you know uh Viola Davis we we just always feel like we have to give it to her because she's one of the greatest actors working today but like she has enough Why, why do we have to always acknowledge her acknowledge her for every single thing she does now that's the Viola Davis of it all but I don't find it hard to believe that if somebody's thinking that way with Viola Davis, they are also Mm -hmm. probably thinking the exact same way with Angela Bassett, because everybody starts to say like, oh, yeah, it's Angela Bassett's time. It's time for her to get it. It's time for her to win. Certain members are probably going to hear that like, "Uh, no, I don't think so. I think I'm actually going to go a different way. I'm going to vote for somebody else. That's trash. It's stupid. It's obviously not based on merit. But when mm-hmm. you're in that position of power, that's their prerogative to, to go in that, tip, that, that, that 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 direction if they choose to. And I think yeah. you have enough of that, enough with everything with what you said to, to, to create a, a, a firestorm that we saw really start to manifest a couple of weeks ago at the Screen Actors Guild Awards that just came to life again here at the, at the Academy mm-hmm. Awards. And it's really unfortunate. And I think... Angela Bassett, I, I I do feel more optimistic about her career because she's always risen to the top. She's always, always. been in a position mm-hmm. to just far exceed everything that she's been in, even if it's not a great movie or not a great TV show. The fact that she is associated with anything typically is always going to yield some some great results for her. But. I do agree to your point that like this this kind of feels like it may have been the best chance and Mm -hmm. and it's still in the supporting actress category. It's still not a lead, a lead category like we can't even get this one. The lead actress category is damn near impossible. History proves that that's almost impossible. The supporting actress category has been a little bit more friendly. You have Viola Davis and Octavia Spencer and Hattie McDaniel and Monique. Mm -hmm. But even now, it's still like, well, you still have to work. Three times as hard to get half as far, if that, you know. And so it's really it's really unfortunate to see. I think all the other actresses in this category, just based off of Mary, could have won it. Stephanie Shu literally transformed the movie when she comes into it. I love Carrie Condon in The Banshees of Inn and I love what Hong Chow did in The Whale. She is essential to that movie. So it is the fifth best performance, I think to win but um it's one of those things where it's 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 just one of those things where it's like it's it's not even about that we we know it's Mm -hmm. just not about that it's not about performances anymore it's about oh shit jamie lee she's been around for so long and she has a story and a narrative how she's been looked over for genre films and she's just put in so many good good performances and have been a part of so many great franchises and just has stuck around for all these years and decades all true all absolutely undeniably true but it, it is unfortunately i think at the at the cost of what we could have seen with Angela Bassett. Um, let's talk about Brendan Fraser. He wins Best Actor. That's just another incredible comeback story. I think, you know, what's what's interesting, back in 1992, and, and Jimmy Kimmel pointed this out, Brendan Fraser and Kihi Kwan were both cast members in Encino Man, which is a movie mostly <laughs> nobody talks about anymore. I'm, I would be surprised if many people have seen it. But now, these two to come back and have like the greatest comeback stories we've seen in recent memory to win awards individually. Brendan Fraser walking away with Best Actor in The Whale. It seemed like for a time there that he might not have won. There was just heavy competition with Colin Farrell in the Banshees of Inisherin. and heavy competition also coming from Austin Butler, who was just mm-hmm. throwing himself out there all awards season long. And it felt like, well, if they're going to kind of fuck this up, it might be in this category. And I think a lot of people wanted to see Brendan win, and thankfully, he did walk away with the win, and he gave a really heartfelt speech, and this is just a guy I've been watching since I was a kid. He was in the mummy franchise. And again, another franchise I've rewatched endlessly. And to see him come back in this yes. way after everything he's been through, some very dark personal stuff to win this award, it was it was a beautiful thing to see.
2: No, it really was, man. Especially you gotta you gotta add the fact again. You know, we we'll talk about this more. Both him and Quan, man, eight twenty four movies. <laughs> the people who take chances. Um, Brandon Fraser, man, like you said, what a story. The Mummy is uh, definitely a near and dear franchise to my heart. I've, I've spoken on the show about movies me and my cousins would see certain franchises. It was X-Men, Lord of the Rings, and The Mummy was one of them. The Mummy was one of those franchises you went to go see. So Brandon Fraser has has always been uh, cemented, I think, in my movie-going experience in some ways. I even remember when George of the Jungle like, came out. I wasn't old. I was like three years old when the movie even came out. But I just remember him in it it was like a whole thing i remember bedazzled i remember journey to the center of the earth i remember these random movies that he was in but it it it, you did see him disappear and for him to come back the way he did with the well with the darkness it's almost like the darkness of his story and the things that he went through you can see it in his performance in the well even though it's about something in a lot of ways completely different you know what i mean but you still see that energy and that time put in to the well man and so i was very happy that he won that category shout out to Austin Butler though like to be honest I was like if he wins here I will be salty that Brendan Fraser doesn't get it but he also was like he was doing you talked about it. he was doing all the press (laughs) he also like after the movie was over still sounded like Elvis for a long period of time where it was like dang dude you are still in this mode of Elvis so he really killed it but I think this is another one of those examples where the Academy, I think this is a, another reason it's like, we can't give it to Stephanie Hsu, right? I feel like this is one of those things where we feel like he's gonna be around a long time, right? I think people recognize Austin Austin Butler is talented. Austin Butler is, I think he's gonna end up being like one of those like good actors that's a heartthrob, almost like uh, like Brad Pitt, how we always say he's like a really good actor in a movie star body. I think Austin Butler's gonna follow that exact same kind of, kind of, uh, uh, I think theme um when it, when it comes to his career. So uh uh so shout out to him too but man I'm very proud of Brandon Fraser. It's it's again it's not just a story for him it's also a story for us. Like you said people who we've watched the mummy n- numerous times and we grew up with him. So it it was it was a feel good moment for sure too. And he was he also cried. I was like, "Dang, man, stop it. Everybody stop crying. <laughs> it's, it's too much going on." But no man, it was, it was good. It was good to see.
1: Yeah, I mean, you, you, I think it's easy to assume that a lot of these actors have an incredibly easy life and just enormous amounts of money that's not always true you know kihi Kwan got up there and talked about the fact that just 3 years ago he didn't have health insurance and now here mm. he is and he's getting roles and actively working again after just being away from Hollywood for so long. And he had to use an an Americanized version of his name. And now he's actually using his real birth name, you know, to, to, Mm -hmm. to, to get himself cast and things. Brendan Fraser, again, I would encourage people to research just the things that he's been through. It's, it's, it's unfortunate and terrible stuff, just what he's had to endure. But in addition to that, just the physical toll his body has taken, he's, he's Mm -hmm. accumulated a lot of injuries over his career because of the mummy franchise and how that prohibited, prohibited him from working for a long time. But now to come back and, be a dramatic hefty actor to be recognized in this way is just it's a great thing to see a couple of quick things i do want to touch on before we wrap up here um just other notable winners throughout the night we saw top gun maverick win best sound avatar yes, the way of water sir. picked up best visual effects surprise surprise there um women talking best adapted screenplay for sarah polly rrr won best original song for not to not to we also saw black panther wakanda forever make history once again winning best costume design ruthie carter Is the first black woman in history to win two Oscars in any category. It doesn't matter what we're talking about visual effects, costumes, acting, directing. No black woman has ever won two Oscars. Again, an impressive feet and an impressive stat, but also equally, I think, infuriating to see like, well, damn, it took 95 years for this to occur, but Sheesh. what do you think about just some of these other winners? Also, Guillermo del Toro Pinocchio picking up Best Animated Feature Film, which we we, we certainly expected to happen. Um, any other like big sort of highlights out of out of these other winners out, outside of the, the big two from Everything Everywhere All at Once and All Quiet on the Western Front?
2: Uh, man, not really. Some of these were, I don't know, we just had a feeling uh, the way a lot of these would play out. I will say one of the Weird. I don't know if it's a snub, but I Babylon was shut out completely, and Elvis was shut out completely. Babylon being shut out completely isn't that big of a surprise, but I I I still am a little sad it didn't get recognized for something, especially that was in both of our top tens uh, of last year. Man, I really thought it was going to take away that production design. That uh the score was always kind of up in the air to me, although I, I I liked it more. But man, I really wish it got that production design. Um. And then when it comes to um, Elvis, man, I'm, I, again, I was just a little surprised. I thought I would get something. I thought they would like throw it in there. The reason I'm still not too sad about that either is because I really don't like that movie that much. It doesn't really work for me um, at all. The, again, the parts of the movie that did work were some of these technical things, were was makeup and hairstyling, and was Austin Butler's uh, performance, of course. So that, that, yeah, that that is what it is. Shout out to Guillermo for Pinocchio. We knew that was coming. That was very obvious, Um, but man, the movies, the last thing I'll say, man, Banshees getting shut out is interesting, Uh, especially if you're a part of any kind of film like YouTube or film, Twitter, really anything, people really love Banshees, and I don't know, it's just really interesting to see a movie that gets talked about so heavily in the, the, the film crowds get shut out, that's like the one I wouldn't say it's surprising given the categories it was in and the things that went over it, but something about it still felt weird that it was it, that it got shut out. Fablemans, Elvis, and eh, Tar and eh, but something about Banshees, I don't know, feels weird. Um uh, but yeah, pray for your Irish friends. <laughs> That's it. Um well, with
1: the ones that did win, you know, with, with Black Panther and Ruth Carter making history, that that's an incredible thing. I mean, again, it's, it's one of those things where it's like you, you hate to see it take this long, but it, it was great to see her pick up another mm-hmm. costume design award, which was just, you know, really, really, I think an amazing acknowledgement of just the work that she had to double down and do again on Black Panther Wakanda Forever for her to create an entirely new civilization and create a new look and feel for for the Talokan people. That was an enormous challenge to add on top of everything she already had to do with Wakanda. Um, I'm glad Top Gun Maverick won something best sound is appropriate absolutely and they won at the perfect moment too they had the the top gun best picture montage and then they won that award right after um and it's, it's nice to see also you know sarah polly as a, as a female screenwriter you know pick up a best adaptive screenplay award and best visual effects for avatar the way of water that that was absolutely a shoe and i mean james cameron invented technology literally for that movie so there was just no way it was not going to win um no i was going to bring up the ones that did not win you know banshees Fablemans, tar and elvis and overall i think here's the thing these are all movies except Elvis that I really, really like. Um, and Tar is actually like it's just it's a feat. But the the problem and the issue is is when you get a movie like Everything Everywhere All at Once, and also, you know, to somewhat of a smaller degree, all quiet on the Western front, when they win so many awards, when they are so dominant, that just means that less less movies are gonna win. So you have a mm-hmm. situation where the Banshees of Inisherin, one of my top tens of 2022, it gets shut out, tar, which listen, you know, I think. I'm so happy Michelle Yo won. I, I am I, over the moon. Kate Blanchett, she has her two. She won first for basically doing a Katherine Hepburn impersonation in The Aviator. Still good, but it was really an impersonation. She won again for Blue Jasmine, a movie I really, really like, but nobody really talks about anymore. And that's where she got her that's best true. actress. Tar is just like she's, she's LeBron she James and men's. Tar. It's a generational yep. performance. And for her to not win, it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, she has two and it's not going to be the biggest deal ever. But I think when we look back on history and we think about tar as a movie, that's a film yeah. we're going to be talking about. Like I just rewatched mm-hmm. it and it's just, it's astounding what Todd Field accomplished and what Cate Blanchett accomplished in that film. And so it is one of those things where like nobody saw it essentially, but it's going to have a life and it's going to be around for such a long time. And Cate Blanchett picked up a different award outside of the Academy. She was the most watched actress on Letterboxd in 2022, which is a nice stat. That's, it's nice to be like the most watched actress working across the board so I think that's just a testament to how popular she has become over the years but you know again one movie sort of winning and picking up everything is definitely going to sort of be a detriment to others but that's kind of the way things work out sometimes but overall man it was a really impressive show I think and I think it was just a an appropriate place to get us back on the straight and narrow with the Oscars to get people feeling a bit comfortable with the show again especially after two very controversial years I think they kind of needed a place to just sort of right the ship and get get things back in a, in a place where people are just like, yeah, this is the Oscars. This is what it is. We're not going to do too many surprises here. We're going to mostly, you know, sort of stick to the formula and get back to the way things have typically been done. But folks, those are all of our thoughts on the 95th Academy Awards. If you've checked out the award show, if you checked out the winners or the performances or just anything else involving the show, definitely hit us up and let us know what you think. And with that being said, we're going to transition to and review some movies. First up, we have to talk about the sixth installment in the Scream franchise that just recently released in theaters, Scream 6.
0: I had this secret. There's a darkness inside of me. It followed me here. And it's gonna keep coming for us. We share a certain history. This isn't like any other ghost face. What is this place? A shrine. We've got to lure him in. We execute him hello let's play a game you know you're like the tenth guy to try this right it never works out for the dipshit in the mask maybe but there's never been one like me (laughs) gail i'm something different that's why i'm gonna shoot you in the head You want me. So let's finish this. Guys?
1: Now, this movie is directed by Matt Bettinelli, Open, and Tyler Gillett, and is written by James Vanderbilt and Guy Busick. and it's starring Melissa Barrera, Jasmine Savoy-Brown, Jack Champion, Henry Zernie, Mason Gooding, Leanna Libertado, Dermot Moroni, Devon Nicota Jenna Ortega, Tony Revolori, Josh Agar, Samira Weaving, Hayden Panettiere, and Courtney Cox. So the Scream franchise oh, came back in a big, big way back in 2022 with the fifth installment, aptly titled just scream and many many people were very receptive to that movie it had great positive critical reaction it did very well at the box office and so paramount pictures wasted absolutely no time to immediately green light a sequel that was going to drop merely a year later after scream 5 from last year and so scream 6 just recently rolled out into theaters infamously infamously easy for me to say, infamously, whatever, I'm going to work on that word later. Courtney (laughs) Cox is back for this installment, but Nev Campbell, longly associated with this franchise, is not back. She's often been the star of the Scream franchise, but due to some contractual negotiations that broke down, she chose and opted out to not return in in this film. And so they have firmly placed the focus on really our lead characters, most notably Melissa Barrera and Jenna Ortega in this film. This movie is also noticeable because it's taking place in New York City, so this is the first time that a Scream film is occurring outside of Woodsboro, the fictional town that we mostly associate with this franchise. They're going to a brand new setting for the sixth time out to do something completely different, but it does have the same creative team from last year's film coming back into place with Radio Silence. But with all of that out the way, man, we got a chance to go check out this movie this past weekend. I will pass it over to you. What do you think about Scream 6?
2: I really, really... I, I just really love Scream. I think as a franchise, man. It is another one of those franchises that we just kind of grew up with. You know, it just kind of always existed and it always existed as a staple to to horror, man. It was always kind of thrown in the fray, you know, after the first one comes out. And it was all and really the second one too. It was always kind of thrown into the fray when people would talk about slashers. You know, it used to be just the Halloweens and it used to be just the Nightmare on Elm Streets, and then Scream gets thrown in, and so when I'm growing up, Scream was always like one of those movies that just everybody knew about, man, and and coming into this film, especially after the fifth one, which we reviewed again almost perfectly a year ago (laughs) here, um, I was really excited, especially seeing the marketing for this, knowing it was going to be in New York. I was like, "Uh uh-oh. Ghostface comes to New York. What are they going to do? And the trailers looked really good and it had me intrigued, man. And I have to say, I had a blast watching this movie. Like, I'm trying to remember, like, the last horror film that I just had a ton of fun (laughs) in the theater with as much as I have in this movie, man, in Scream 6. Like, I had a lot, a lot, a lot of fun. This is, I think, a tremendous example of what it means to have a a sequel with purpose a lot of people have sequels and they just want to make money and a lot of people want to this is a sequel where they had a purpose we even talked about if they do another one this is after Scream five I mean you're talking on the podcast if they do another one what what does that look like and we said I I said that just needs to be a story worth telling they have and that's it. That's always the thing with me. There has to be a story worth telling. If so, you can have another sequel. And here, they they do it, man. They they come out swinging. Uh, there's things in this movie that I've never seen before in a Scream movie that I absolutely love, that I absolutely enjoy. There are so many movie tropes. That I, have, I don't think I've ever seen a movie as self-aware as these last two Screams have been. Scream 5 and Scream 6 are the most self-aware films that... It I probably should be studied. Um, they just get it. And I think that helps with the telling of their stories when you can look at the audience and, and wink and be like, this is why we're here. And this is the story we're trying to tell. So I really love that about it. You mentioned Nev Campbell wasn't here. It wasn't really a worry for me because Melissa Barrera and General Ortega were involved, man. We seen with Scream 5 what they could do and they show up again in Scream 6 carrying the movie and it's really about them, man. And they really do, I think, what's needed in order to to, to keep this movie afloat and keep the movie um, moving in the ways in which it should. And they even, to me, give like an emotional value to the film that even some of the other screen movies don't have. But it's something about the chemistry between Melissa Barrera and and Jenna and Ortega, as well as the story they're trying to tell between those two characters, that... It just fit to me in a screen movie, and it, and it makes sense for me, man. Uh, I really love the gore in this film. It's great. The kills are gnarly. Ghostface has upgraded. He is a different—it is a different Ghostface. He is— I don't know, doing different things. Uh the the trailer, he's in he's in public now. All these all these other things um that again just didn't exist in the previous scream that they actually come in and they do differently and in in a lot of ways better here, man. So uh, I could talk about this film a lot. It was it was very much anxiety inducing. Again, I had a tremendous time. And to be honest, it's probably instantly what one of my favorite Scream films. It really is. Um, a lot of people will be like, what? It's, it's not going to be the first one. The second one, I still hold near and dear to my heart as well. But something about this movie, man, I really, really liked. And I think they just got it. I think they just got it.
1: Yeah, I think that this is the best Scream movie since Scream 2. And that's, that's not really... Uh, a tough decision for me to call i kind of felt it instantly after we saw it and coming into this movie i had a lot of faith in it just considering the fact that the same exact creative team is behind this radio silence is coming back they clearly considering how fast this movie was put into production they they knew where they wanted to go with it so all the signs pointed to the fact that like okay they have something here they're going to go in some different directions and do something Mm -hmm. that we haven't quite seen before and six films in which is kind of astounding the writing which is really the most important thing at the end of the day the script and the writing is still as sharp as it's ever been and the framework for this movie there's always a framework for screen movies because they are so self-referential they often talk about you know sort of the meta nature of pop culture and where cinema and where movies have been and where they currently are and the framework for this one is the fact that with six movies now, Scream has become a franchise, and so now we've entered into even new territory, and I was wondering, well, what are they going to use? What's the device that they're going to use to bring this movie into the story, into the saga of Scream, and last year, with that movie, it was often about, quote-unquote, elevated horror, just the way that has changed over the course of the past 15 or so years. Now, it's a franchise, and because it's a franchise... The horror rules are kind of thrown out of the book. Like, now we have to lean into stuff even outside the horror genre. And nothing is off limits. Anything can be referenced. Like, even outside of the horror genre, we're talking about big franchises. We're talking about big IP. We're talking about students in film school and giallo references. And we're talking about true crime culture and just, like, the insidious nature of the internet. And just, like, how people become, out of nowhere, conspiracy theorists about things that are going on. Like, it's all these different pockets and things that internet and film twitter have really tapped into and has bubbled up over the years but also like these things that are exacerbated by just like the 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 content that we consume on a daily day day day-to-day basis like the big ip the big franchises that occupy Mm -hmm. movie theaters year in and year out and so None of of that stuff is off limits and they come for that and you have the monologue that breaks all that stuff down, which of course is like very witty and very fun, but they are holding back no punches at all because even people that think that they might be safe, like if you think like you're ahead of the curve with the movie, you're like, oh, I'm totally in. Like I know who they're talking about. I know what they're referencing. It's like, no, they come for you too. It's like, they're going to say something about (laughs) you too. Like you hold things in such a high regard, but like, do people really care about this shit at the end of the day? Probably not. Mm. And so they make, they make a pointed decision to call that stuff out. And that's how you continue to subvert expectations with this franchise. That's how you continue to go into directions that cannot be predicted. And that's what always makes the scream films feel so fresh. They've often taken, you know, some, some longer gaps in between movies. But now, like with this sort of back-to-back scream five and scream six duo, they have perfectly spoken to just the, the state of movie going and the state of pop culture, you know, as it as it currently exists. And so mm-hmm. I know they're gonna do another one. There's no doubt about that. But I'm even more interested now to see like well, what's the framework for the next one going to be? Like, how are they going to tackle something else? It's going to have to be something probably conclusive that wraps up this generation Mm -hmm. and this storyline in particular. And so I I assume it's going to be in that vein, but we'll have to see. But you talked about New York City being a new environment. That also adds in an entirely new flavor that's not been a part of any of these films. There have been other horror films in New York in the past that I just won't really speak about here, but they've just not been successful. They have not... (laughs) They've not leaned into what makes New York a scary place. Like, yes, it's cool to throw... Sorry, I'm going to acknowledge them. It's cool to throw Jason in Times Square. Fine, let's get that <laughs> shot. But is it scary? Is there really horror to that? No. And so this movie didn't actually film in New York. It filmed in Montreal. But the way that they brought New York to life and the way that they used it to service the story is what makes it genius because I think more than any other screen film, probably since like 2 and 1, the way that they build and use tension here... It's just Mm -hmm. so expertly done because you can do things with this New York environment that you can't accomplish with other places. It's in the trailer. There are great sequences in a New York bodega, and there's great sequences in a New York subway. There are just cool, creative, conceptual things that you can do there to build tension, to get you feeling very nervous about the state of your characters, That you just can't accomplish anywhere else. Because there's so many people walking around New York. There's alleyways. There's dark corners. There's fucking Mm -hmm. rats the size of human legs. Like you just don't know what's going to go on in New York City. So it just opens up a whole new breadth of possibilities here. And so that was just a great thing to see. The performances were really strong. I liked Courtney Cox coming back here. I liked Hayden Panettiere coming back here. Because though we didn't have Nev Campbell. They added the, the legacy component to this franchise. Which is a useful thing to have. I only have a couple of key disappointments. The first one, and I didn't expect this because I don't think it's ever happened with me. I clocked the killer or killers very early. I, I I pretty much knew at the moment who they were because it felt like they pointed to them in a very yeah. obvious way. I don't know how many people picked up on it, but it felt just like very obvious to me. Like, oh, well, they just kind of gave it away like blatantly there. And yeah. I, the conclusion of what the motives were and how they got there, I didn't 100% match that up. But I got pretty close. I'm like, oh, well. I kind of know what that person's motives are, or, mm. or what that group's motives are, and so I didn't. I didn't really like that. I, I thought that that was kind of a, a missed opportunity to, to clock them so early because the other ones have kind of been good about, you know, really making you sort of disbelieve, you know, who, whoever's yeah. going to be the killer. Like it's, it's a they do a pretty good job, I think, with the whole whodunit aspect. And the only other big problem that I have with this movie is the fact that Ghostface. You talked about the gore, Ghostface is carving motherfuckers up like left and right in this movie There's but living <laughs> the amount of people that just like survive
2: they just be walking around and are
1: okay that's a problem like that's a problem yeah, that we have to address like it, it lessens the stakes and mm-hmm. i think that that's just like an issue that they'll have to come back with and this might be a slight spoiler so like fast forward 15 seconds if you don't want to hear it but more people needed to die like, they just should have had more deaths across the board. Like, you think a lot of people die, but, you know, that is not a thing that really happens. Like, more people should have actually died in this movie. And so I didn't like mm-hmm. that, that so many people survive stab wounds. I, I guess just, like with the whole franchise model, people's threshold for pain is just higher now. I guess we just, we're becoming <laughs> bulletproof. You know, you got to really kill motherfuckers if you're going to really take them out. They're going to talk about it. It's going to take 37 stabs in the next movie. Like, oh damn, how do we survive this? You know, so I think that they just, they, they have to address that. Like, we have, to, we have to make sure to maintain some stakes because this is like real. This is not like Fast and mm-hmm. Furious. Like, there actually should be some some actual you know stakes that we feel with this movie, but beyond that, man, this is this is just an incredible you know I think another installment into this franchise. We are seeing horror as we talked a lot about last year. Living in the moment right now, I yes. think Scream is now the number one movie at the box office. It overperformed, over-indexed what 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 critics and and pundits thought it was going to do, and so it's bringing in a lot of money. I have no doubt that they're going to make another one. That that seems like a shoe in at this point. But does it not feel like that horror movies and the horror genre now has like the greatest Return on investment out of any any genre in, in, in the movies right now? Like that has to be the most surefire bet in terms of something that's gonna cost the least amount of money possible, but it's gonna bring back the most money possible for a film studio. I mean, we've just seen so many examples of this in the past year alone. Barbarian and Smile are just mm-hmm. like doing incredible. Evil Dead Rises right around the corner. I have very high expectations that that's gonna like yes. overperform on a big, big level. And now Scream mm-hmm. is having the biggest opening weekend in franchise history six movies in this is stuff that doesn't usually happen what do you think about just like horror you know sort of being like the most reliable genre out of any film genre at this point in day and age as far as it, you know we talk about movie and theatrical film going
2: it's really a different moment in time you know horror films good horror films are hard to come by i think that's an important thing to note because man you talk about in recent years oh psh. It, you were al- almost always guaranteed to be disappointed in the horror film you were going to see. It was just bad for a long time. It really was, um, and now it's it seems like a, just a shift is happening. And it's, it's, what's also interesting about that is it's coming after the pandemic. You know, it feels like it was like pandemic horror turned up. There was these there was these couple movies before the pandemic, wink wink, Hereditary, Midsummer, <laughs> and then like every. Slash Get Out Slash Us, you know what I mean? It's like the Ari Aster Slash Jordan Peele effect, where it feels like people were just motivated. Like I feel like something about COVID, with those movies sitting with those in COVID, people was like, "Man, we got to make something, and we got to make something good." And in 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 innately, horror just always has very low budgets. It just is what it is, right? And now I I think people do have stories to tell and and interesting ways to look at horror, and and, and, and it's just great, man. I think it's really dope to see the places that we've come from with horror, because again, it was bad. Like horror was like an example of, of of the way it was is like Texas Chainsaw on Netflix, like that was like every movie for like five years, and it was all these everybody wanted to make a a possession movie or a demon movie or really in in it just it was not working but something about it now man something about it's something about that concept of elevated horror that is slightly changing things even though you know it's it's funny it's a commentary on itself and, and, and scream was making fun of it it's something about that attention to detail or that thought that is changing the way and people make horror films it's low-key a genre that's evolving it is what it is I think movies evolve that's what happens and so I I think we're just living in that moment man and horror happens to be that best return on investment the budgets are still low but the stories and the 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 things that they're trying to tell their audiences are just better than the in, in which they were so they're more reflective of the times in which we're in and I think that's very beneficial for the genre man
1: yeah, I mean, with the more artsy, quote unquote, directors that have come in lately, Jordan Peele, Ari Aster, folks like that, uh, that they definitely have raised the stakes and, and and elevated the game, and and I think have challenged people to, to to put more into this into this genre and put more thought into it, and also just what 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 a horror movie could be, like what it could mm-hmm. even look like. But in addition to that, you talked about post COVID. I think that that's a really important thing. Like when people go back to the movies after being away for so long, they want to have the most visceral emotional response possible and no genre will elicit that more than a horror movie like it's going to make you feel something even if you don't like it you'll feel something you'll detest it and loathe it and maybe think it's the worst (laughs) shit you've ever seen or you are going to be terrified out of your mind it can can generate all those types of feelings and so i think when you're looking for a time out on a friday night horror movies have provided that that sort of escape especially coming into a post-covid theatrical movie going market where you need something that's going to have people feeling like that that experience out is going to be worth it and I think horror has just proven lately that it often is worth it if you have the right creative team behind it but lots to be looking forward to with the Scream franchise but folks those are our thoughts on the brand new installment into the franchise Scream 6 if you checked out this movie Definitely hit us up and let us know what you think. Let's go ahead and move on and talk about another movie that just recently released this past weekend, the brand new science fiction action film 65. Location
0: unknown. Charter 373. This is Commander Mills. My ship was hit by an undocumented asteroid. Anyway. Location unknown. Transporting 35 passengers. Anyway. Location unknown on a long-range exploratory mission. Send help. We've crash-landed on an uncharted celestial body. I don't know where we are. located one survivor, a giant. The atmosphere is breathable. There's something alien out there. And move. You and I are gonna get home. Home. finally. Ready?
1: Now, this movie is written and directed by Scott Beck and Brian Woods, and it's starring Adam Driver, Ariana Greenblatt, and Chloe Coleman. So, 65 has been around for a little bit in terms of the marketing. It's been one of those movies that's been a little bit under the radar, but it's definitely been something that I think we've been privy to for quite a while. In front of a lot of genre films, we would see the trailer for 65. Adam Driver, of course, is one of the most recognizable faces now in Hollywood. Mm. Post-Star Wars, he's done a lot of really interesting work and has worked with a lot of notable directors like Noah Baumbach and Martin Scorsese. But he's dipping back into genre fare here, which he's been away from, from since I think the Star Wars movie, since The Rise of Skywalker back in 2019. In addition to that, it's also a dinosaur movie, which we don't get a ton of those, but I think anytime you see a dinosaur movie, it's going to get people talking like, oh, wait, there's a new dinosaur movie in theaters, especially now that Jurassic World has sort of wrapped up its recent iteration of that franchise. And so it has a lot going for it in terms of the premise and in terms of the pitch, but we had to go check it out to see how it was actually going to deliver. So with all of that out the way, I will pass it over to you, man. What do you think about 65?
2: You know, a a good idea... I think is Adam Driver fights dinosaurs. To be honest, that's simple. I I I bought into that idea. <laughs> I am fine with that, especially like you said, a uh, a movie where this is there is no Jurassic Park. Uh very rare that we see dinosaurs nowadays outside of that franchise. And so I was interested coming in to 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 this film. And I'm gonna really keep this short, man. It's for me. It's. It's just the, I'm okay with a simple premise, but I feel like there are ways around it in which you can make a simple premise exciting. And unfortunately, this movie for the most part was just boring. I was just, I kept waiting for things to happen. And when they did happen, either they were too familiar or I don't, some, it's just something I had seen before. And I was like, is that it? Is that all we're getting? Um, And so I was, I don't know, man, I just really left, The film disappointed because I felt like sometimes to be honest I even felt like they took this movie too seriously part of me wishes they even reached into like this weird predator territory or you know what I'm saying where like Adam Driver is the movie star who fights dinosaurs and he has guns and part of me wishes they tapped into something like that because that's really what it is it's a dude in the forest fighting dinosaurs and it's almost like they didn't it's almost like they tried to elevate their own story A little bit and some of those beats Do work don't get me wrong There is There are parts of this film where I'm like Okay that could be a thing And then it just doesn't really become Anything at all by the end of it man So uh, I think Again the skeleton the idea I love the idea of this dude from the future getting trapped <laughs> in this time period where there's dinosaurs and he has future gadgets to fight him and there's this little girl involved in all of these things but I just really wish it, it, it exists in this weird medium where it's almost not enough and then sometimes they're trying to do too much so yeah I left disappointed and unfortunately it was pretty boring for me Yeah, not a great movie. There's not really much to
1: say. It's not a train wreck. There are some things that I like about it. But overall, the execution just wasn't there. I think the Mm -hmm. biggest problem with 65 is the fact that one, that's a bad title. They should have named it something else. It's pretty bad. Two, the story is really, really thin. I, I just don't think that there's really much there. A lot of the story takes place in the first 20, 25 minutes in establishing the characters establishing what's happening, especially like as it relates to Adam Driver's character and his relationship to his family and his daughter in this movie. But then from there, once he gets transported somehow back in time to sixty five million years ago and we're sort of left with the main premise of this movie. It just doesn't add up to really a fun experience overall. It's just kind of one of those things where you watch it, you see the attacks happen, you see him come across many different species and dinosaurs, and sometimes it's like kind of frightening. There's a couple of jump scares, and sometimes it's like, oh, that's a really nasty insect that he's coming into contact with. And then, oh, there's the really huge dinosaur. How is he going to defeat that? But it's not really anything before (laughs) or after that that that, that makes you want to just like totally invest into the character or the story. And so... I think that it's not campy enough to just think it's like a big, dumb, fun movie. And it's exactly. also too serious to take it serious. It's just not exactly. one of those things where you're just going to like be like, oh, yeah, this is like an actual credible movie. Like It's that weird in-between where it's like it's not enough of plain. But it's also simultaneously not enough of, like you said, predator. I think is a good mm-hmm. example. Like recent predator mm-hmm. movies that have been a little bit more campy. But you know, it's just one of those things that's unfortunate. You you, you definitely want to see Adam Driver in better projects. He is a just such an excellent talent in Hollywood. He's such a fascinating and great actor that can do a lot of different things. And and the fact that he was coming back into a genre film, I was really really looking forward to that because I think he has the capability to to be a leading man in that respect. And Potentially be a part of another franchise if he wants to one day, but this doesn't provide much in the way of hope as it relates to that. But that's that's mostly due to the material that he's working with. It's not because of him himself. He's always going to be fine. What do you think about dinosaur movies at this day and age? I think I think we kind of need a reset on dinosaur movies because Jurassic World has kind of gone away. It'll be back. They're definitely going to make more. But I don't know where you go with dinosaurs. It's one of those things that's always reliable. It feels like people are Mm -hmm. always going to show up for dinosaur movies. But maybe not if it's if it's if it's in the case of something like this where it's like there's like minimal dinosaur. It's like 20 percent dinosaur when we're really looking for like, oh, I need like 75 percent dinosaur. But what do you think about where dinosaur movies could go in the future?
2: man, I really don't know. It's hard to tell. Again, there's there's something about the premise of really new technology and these like old dinosaurs that was interesting in this movie in particular in 65, but they don't do enough with it for me to be like, oh, that's the reason why I came or this is what the interesting part of the film. Part of me even wishes somebody else kind of explores that idea in a different way. In fact, The video games, the Horizon video games, man, they're doing it right. If anybody's doing dinosaurs right, it's Horizon Zero Dawn, man, where the dinosaurs are mechs for the most part. I can imagine some kind of dinosaur story where it's the old dinosaurs versus the mechs. Low-key, we're probably about to get a decent it's not dinosaurs one-to-one we're probably about to get a decent example of what a good dinosaur story could be hopefully in this next transformers film you know what i'm saying like i feel like those concepts and some of the things that they're going to be playing with in those films where there's old uh beasts that turn into transformers and things like i feel like there might be some interesting things there man so i really don't know dinosaurs like you said it's always something that's there it just needs to be interesting um and i think i think something playing with that technology uh, could be really cool, to be honest. So, yeah, we'll have to see.
1: Dinosaurs will always work in cinema because people just have a thrill with that, especially considering we did not exist at the time that they existed. But this was forgettable. You cannot create a forgettable dinosaur movie. That's a hard thing to do to create something that's they forgettable did with dinosaurs. But <laughs> they somehow managed to accomplish that. But, folks, those are our thoughts on the new science fiction action film, 65. If you checked out this movie, definitely hit us up and let us know what you think. And with that being said, we're going to transition and talk about some TV. First up, we're going to talk about the brand new crime thriller series that just debuted on Peacock, Poker Face.
0: What's it like always knowing the truth? There's nothing mystical about it. I could just tell. When anyone is lying? Yeah. I know what you did, you psycho. You're going to find Charlie Kidd, and you're going to bring it to me. You live on the road, right? What's it like Leave everything behind? Start fresh. I got wolves on my fender. Oh, I gotta keep moving. Holy, holy. It wasn't an accident. I, I think there's been a murder. Look out! I have been kind of a death magnet. I'm trying to figure out what happened. You watch too much dateline. I could tell she was lying. What is it? The woman's intuition? No, it's not like a tampon commercial, okay? It's a real thing. Come with me. Front seat of the trunk. Your choice. where you're a human lie
1: detector. Yeah, I know it's uh it's crazy. You ever gamble cause you can make a killing.
0: <laughs> nah
1: Now this series is created by Ryan Johnson and it's starring Natasha Lyonne. All episodes are currently now streaming on Peacock, but it initially debuted back at the end of January. It had ten episode, a ten episode first season. As I mentioned, this series is created by Ryan Johnson, who is behind Knives Out and most recently Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery on Netflix. Two really, really incredible. It stories mystery stories definitely calling back to the days of Ag- Agatha Christie stories that, that we're seeing really sort of extrapolated and, and, and spun into new remixes in this day and age and Ryan Johnson has kind of been at the forefront of that but with Poker phase, he's leaning into that whole aspect of a crime sort of mystery thriller series but he's doing something a little bit different as opposed to what we see out of maybe Knives Out of Glass Onion which are considered whodunits its. This is actually Poker Face a How Catch 'em which hasn't been used that much lately in the in the in the you know sort of television medium but the How Catch 'em storytelling method was popularized with the Columbo series which you would basically have the crime that was shown at the beginning of the story usually identifying the perpetrator and then the rest of the story is with our protagonist somehow figuring out to solve the mystery they're 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 attempting to to do their detective work to figure out the mystery but we're we're typically shown the crime right from the get-go we know who the perpetrator is and then we're just mostly following along the journey to see well how are they going to get caught what's going to happen to that person and so with Poker Phase we have a series that's sort of employing a case of the week sort of uh, style of mystery, which, you know, that's not really happening that much in, in, today's sort of modern television landscape. We don't have that many detective series and we definitely don't have that many series employing this sort of method. Again, Columbo was, was the most notable to do it, but that was such mm-hmm. a long time ago in the seventies and yeah. the eighties. And so Ryan Johnson, again, is doing something totally different than his cinematic work in the television medium. And I got a chance to check out the series. It just wrapped up with its 10th, 10th episode that debuted last week. And this is a phenomenal TV series. This is a just an incredible, incredible first outing from Ryan Johnson and Natasha Lyonne. It, it's such a gift to see a guy like Ryan Johnson who has not really made a bad movie at this point. But then he transitions into franchise work for a little bit there and does a Star Wars movie. Comes out not unscathed because many people don't like the last jedi but he's still able to rebound and produce i think his highest quality work in these past like four to five years with the knives out franchise and now poker face and just the work that he's doing here is just absolutely incredible week to week he noticeably directed the first two episodes and then also the ninth episode those are my favorite episodes of the season by the way but there's a different coterie of directors that come in lots of different writers that come in and contribute to the story and because this is a case of the week style mystery tv series there's just a rotating cast of Just incredibly stellar actors. It's really no reason for me to mention them because it's so many people, but there are so (laughs) many Oscar-nominated actors that just come into the sandbox week to week to play around. Recently, I will mention, we just talked about Stephanie Hsu and Hong Chao. They are both Mm. in this first season, and it's great to see them pop up here and just contribute small roles, but meaningful roles to the stories that they're involved with. But really, the standout here is Natasha Lyonne as the central figurehead. Her character, Charlie, has this unique ability where she's able to basically call out somebody if they're lying. It's almost like a supernatural ability. They don't really explain how she's able to do this, but she knows when people are lying. She's kind of like a human lie detector test. And so if somebody tells a lie, she immediately calls bullshit. She's, she's able to tell how they're lying. So she herself is not a detective. But she has this ability to figure out crimes and to solve mysteries because of this, this natural sort of thing that she's able to, 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 to implement week to week. And the premise is at the top of the series, she she ultimately gets herself into some really hot water. She gets wrapped up into you know sort of a, a really dark mystery with a casino owner in Reno, Nevada. And she ultimately has to end up on the run across the country to evade them and to, to stay away from them. And, and on her journey across the country, she comes across a colorful cast of new characters and help solve these mysteries um there are murderous crimes at every turn you 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 get everything from a family-owned barbecue in texas to a pair of hippies living in an old retirement home who are looking for revenge on a guy. It's stuff that's just random like that because she's taking up all these different odd jobs. She's ending up in these really precarious situations that are random but still very entertaining that just give you a different flavor. It's almost semi like a semi anthology in that respect because I think with the with the whole how catch him sort of style of mystery that they're employing here, there are times in the episode where you don't see Natasha Leone for a long time. She might not pop up until mm. 20 25 minutes into the episode and sometimes you miss her but because these characters and the stories are so strong that they're building and crafting out week to week I didn't find myself oftentimes missing her I'm like she's gonna pop up when we need her to but right now I'm really invested into what I'm seeing right now because I just want to see like how how dastardly this whole crime is gonna be and so I just found this show to just be so entertaining the writing is incredible there's really clever in smart dialogue it's funny there's great humor here i already talked about the really stellar cast here that they have um and some of my favorite episodes i do also want to point out another episode episode eight called the orpheus syndrome which feels like it creates and draws a lot of parallels to ryan johnson's time working at lucasfilm on the Mm. star wars movie because there's a character in that particular episode that definitely feels like some sort of amalgamation of Kathleen Kennedy who's the current president of Lucasfilm and there's a stop motion animation company involved in that episode so it feels like they're you know kind of speaking to Industrial Light and Magic the real life visual effects company it just feels very pointed in that direction and i love that he's just taking risks like that because it i think it's speaking to a previous time in his career where he was doing big franchise work and so many people hate the last jedi for for whatever reason and he was catching a lot of the blame for that. I think unfairly so at many points in time. Mm-hmm. And so I think for him to shoehorn this in this series in this particular way was a cr- really creative way to do that, to kind of speak to that particular time in his career. So overall, I can't recommend this series enough. Poker Face, it's really incredible. Um, and it potentially might end up on my top 10 at the end of the year. It's that good. We'll have to see, obviously. It's a long year ahead of us, but it's right. really that good between the writing, the acting performances, and just the unique the unique way that they employ the different cases week to week. It was It was a treat to watch.
2: Man, this was uh, something I, for, I forgot to add when we were talking about most anticipated TV shows of this year, man. Um, I, the trailers look good to me. Natasha Leon really is just one of those. I, I like to call them Orange the New Black Alumni. We talked about that off podcast a little bit, but she's one of the few. That feels like she has had constant work <laughs> ever since that show concluded. And so I'm really interested in everything that she does. I think she was in Russian Doll, I think, before this. I think that's the name of the show on Netflix. Um, and, yeah, I'm just really excited to see her. But her, mixed with the premise of the show, mixed with Ryan Johnson, really made me excited to watch it. So I still haven't watched it yet. I can't wait to watch it. But from everything you just said, I need to get on it and, 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 and watch it, man. It really sounds like everything that I hoped – that it would be something interesting that you said is like her not being on screen for like 25 minutes at the beginning in the beginning of an episode or something like i think that's so interesting and a hard thing to pull off right uh and to me that's just ryan johnson's geniusness you know what i mean to me that feels like only something somebody like ryan johnson can pull off because there is so many shows where there there are moments where i don't know it's a flashback or something or we're, we're we're looking at somebody else and the whole time you're like all right Where's our main protagonist? So I think that's interesting that uh, uh, they they were able to pull that off. I think that's pretty dope, man. But I really can't wait to check it out. I'm sure it is as amazing as you make it sound.
1: Well, folks, those are our thoughts on the brand new Peacock original series, Poker Face. If you've checked out the series, definitely hit us up and let us know what you think. And with that being said, we're going to transition and talk about the return of the Star Wars original series with season three of The Mandalorian.
0: Our people are scattered Mandalore, so that I may be forgiven for my transgressions. May the Force be with you! This is the way. There's something dangerous happening out there, and by the time it becomes big enough for you to act, it'll be too late.
1: Now, this series is created by John Favreau, and it's starring Pedro Pascal and Katie Sackoff. So The Mandalorian is a show we've talked a lot about on this on this podcast. We reviewed most of the episodes from season two, if I'm not mistaken, but it's been over two years since we've seen The Mandalorian on Disney Plus. Now, famously, if you've checked out the book of Boba Fett also on Disney Plus, the Mandalorian character did pop up about halfway through that season of that original series, but in terms again of the Mandalorian story. As an isolated story it's been a long time a long layoff in between seasons and it's been quite a while since we've been ingrained into this world and so there was a lot of anticipation coming back into the Mandalorian especially with just the state of Star Wars and where things are right now coming off of what we saw last year with I think an excellent excellent series the best Star Wars material we've probably gotten in 40 years with Andor and then you couple that with probably something that was disappointing for a lot of fans in obi-wan kenobi which i know there were a lot of high hopes about the state of star wars is forever in flux and it's forever changing and sometimes it feels a little inconsistent as to whether or not we can be excited but the mandalorian has largely been beloved it's largely been one of those things that's been embraced by star wars fandom most most notably because of baby Grogu baby Yoda he is just one of the most cute adorable things that's ever been created and also one of the biggest cash printers for Disney that they probably have ever created but (laughs) now the Mandalorian has returned we've gotten the first two episodes we're gonna do maybe some light spoilers but I think we're gonna talk generally about what we've seen so far out of the season and we'll be back to talk about the Mandalorian as it progresses for season three but I just want to start here and just ask you how you feel about the Mandalorian returning it has been over two years, how, how are you feeling to sort of be reintroduced to this world and become, you know, sort of refamiliarized with these characters again?
2: Man, I missed it. I always love the opportunity, I think, to continuously be embedded in in Star Wars lore. I think it's one of those things where in recent years, for better and for worse, they've been trying to keep us, I think, uh, fed and fueled with Star Wars content. Um, and I say for better or for worse, right, because Boba Fett is... Eh, Obi-Wan was eh, you know what I mean? But I I, I I, think I do like the attempt for them to at least be like, look, we're going to give you all some Star Wars, man, and in, constantly. Um, So I'm excited to see The Mandalorian back. To me, this was like a, when we first started to talk about the first season, when we first started about the second season, it was one of those TV shows that I felt like I could look, to, look forward to week to week and get something out of it. You know, there are some TV shows we watch, and it's like, That episode was disappointing. This episode was like this. But Mandalorian was pretty consistent across the board, right? We knew what we were buying into every episode. It's literally a Western shot in space. Every episode has its own adventure. Baby Grogu's here. Pedro Pascal is here, which I have to mention They loved him at the Oscars when he was On stage, man, somebody made a, a Comment that was like, either you see him on HBO Or you see him on Disney Plus, he got two TV shows on at the same time, everyone Like, platform and stuff, but This is this is a show, man, where, again You just knew what you were getting, I think, yourself Into, and it made it an easy watch From week to week, so I'm actually very excited that it's Back, it is a, a, a piece of Star Wars Again, that I know what I'm getting to, into Whenever I watch it, I know I'm Going to see Brady Gogru and in, in, it, 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 uh, and I know I'm going to see Pedro Pascal show up as a Mandalorian. And I know I'm going to get an adventure out of it. It is what it is. So I love that it's back. Um, and yeah, man, it's been it's, it's it's been cool so far. Like it it is what it is. There's some some cool things in episode one that I, I, I really enjoyed um, some some aspects of it. But it really just feels like it's one of those shows that feel like we're returned to form. Um, and there are some new things that they're doing that I appreciate. Uh, but yeah, we'll have to see how the rest of the season goes, man. It's fine so far. Nothing too crazy has happened, but it's, 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 yeah, it's, to me, as of right now, it is the most consistent Star Wars that we're getting.
1: I think in recent years, especially with this Disney Lucasfilm era, the Mandalorian is representing Kind of the Star Wars property that has maybe the most widespread appeal because when you are introduced into this world, you don't really have to know anything about Star Wars. You can come in pretty cold. You don't have to see any of the other movies, any of the shows. You don't have to play video games to really just become invested into the story. Of course, obviously that stuff will help enrich the experience and they do start to dive in deeper into the lore as the story mm-hmm. progresses, especially with season two, where it might be useful to know like, well, where did that person come from or why are they important? But I think at the, end of, at the end of the day, if you don't have any sort of previness to Star Wars, if you don't have an association with that franchise at large, you could totally enjoy The Mandalorian by itself for what it is. And I think that that's been... Kind of its key selling point that 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 what that's what makes it different because it can serve as so many different types of people and eventually fans and you don't have to be a diehard Star Wars you know follower to understand like well why mm. is Baby Grogu so important or you know what what's up with this Mandalorian tribe why why do they have to keep their helmets on it does a really good job at keeping things simple at explaining those those things within the story and within the context of of each individual episode and I think that that's why it's been so successful and then you know again just to go back to the obviousness of it you you add in the the cutest creation maybe in star wars history with grogu (laughs) and you have just instantly something that people can fall in love with you have that that tie to other star wars history and other star wars properties but it is still something new that people can just say like oh my god what is this like why is that Mm -hmm. so cute and adorable i want it on everything i want to i want a a pop of it i want a book bag of it i want a laptop case of of grogu You, you just want everything possible it's literally the best potential case i think of a a new series that you could create off of a very well established probably the most well established and well-known ip in hollywood history and so coming back here with season three you certainly just expect them to stay consistent and to stay true with what they've established with the mandalorian i think that the book of boba fett last year presented some interesting challenges for the world of what The Mandalorian has created. Because The Book of Boba Fett, at the end of the day, is a spinoff of The Mandalorian, even though mm-hmm. Boba Fett is kind of the original Mandalorian. But they somehow were, were able to reintroduce that character to to new audiences and and spin that show off. But I think, I think there have been some challenges with the layoff and with the fact that The Mandalorian had such a presence in The Book of Boba Fett. I might be overstating it because I don't think as many people watch The Book of Boba Fett as are watching The Mandalorian. But it is interesting to note that for something that started so simple has now become a little bit more ingrained into the idea of interconnectedness and a shared universe, right? And I think the Mandalorian sort of Star Wars shared universe has become a thing over the past couple of years. We're also going to get Ahsoka later this year, which is another Mm -hmm. Mandalorian spinoff. Last year, when we talked about the Book of Boba Fett, I don't think anybody expected that halfway through the final two or three episodes were going to be completely focused on the Mandalorian character. Like there was one mm-hmm. entire episode where we did not see Boba Fett at all. And there was some very, very key developments that happened with that character to get us to where we are now. Now, if you kept up with season two, you noticed that at the end of season two, it was a very pivotal episode. Luke Skywalker came back and Din Djarin and Grogu split up because Grogu was going to go off with Luke and do some training In the book of Boba Fett, we saw Grogu essentially training with Luke Skywalker, really honing in on his abilities to to, to master the Force. But then by the end of that series, he decided to make the choice to return with Din Djarin, which would ultimately lead us into the season three of The Mandalorian, where they would just continue on their their same adventures. I want to ask about that, though, because for me at the time of The Mandalorian season two, when it ended, it felt like by the end of that, we had gotten two seasons of Din Djarin and Grogu. And it felt like that by the end of that show, or at least the end of that season, they were going to change up the status quo, do something a little bit different. Maybe maybe Grogu and Din Djarin are going to be separated for most of season three, and then they find their way back to each other maybe at the end of that story. But with the Book of Boba Fett, something that was sort of sandwiched in between, they reverted back to the status quo. They got Grogu essentially back to Din Djarin, And you didn't have to watch the Book of Boba Fett to figure that out. You could have just maybe assumed it. But it is one of those weird things that they didn't call back to in the previously on Mm -hmm. at the top of season three. They did not reference the events of the Book of Boba Fett, which I found to be Mm -hmm. a weird decision. I just want to ask you, you know, what do you think about the connectedness, but also kind of the retconning of just everything we've seen out of those two shows? Because they went one direction. They sort of took it back. And now, you know, when you pick up with season three, if you didn't watch the Book of Boba Fett, you're wondering, well, how did Grogu get back with Din Djarin? They didn't show us that. I don't know how to I don't know how to follow this. What do you think about that?
2: Yeah, part of me does believe that's in some way bad. I don't know if planning is the word, but it's bad. I don't know. Connectiveness. uh, Continuity. Continuity. Because you, you simply, as a production company with a franchise, cannot assume that everybody watching The Mandalorian is watching the book of Boba Fett. Just something that shouldn't be. It shouldn't be a thing. You can't assume that and they very much I think do that in the decision to make those last couple episodes so fo- heavily focused on the Mandalorian of the book of Boba Fett they really do it's like i i think for again normal Star Wars fans right who we just watch freaking everything it doesn't matter but you we you literally just talked about the Mandalorian as a TV show where anybody can pick it up you do, you don't have to see the last thing and here they almost went out of their way to create a scenario in which that's not 100% true <laughs> in the book of Boba Fett. And so I think I think that was messy um in a, in a, for a couple of different reasons, but man, I I if you are to your point, part 2 of that, if you're going to do that, it should absolutely most definitely be in the previously on. There is no In fact, it should probably be the thing you focus on the most in the previously on. It's just a previously on the book of Boba Fett as it pertains to the Mandalorian or something, you know, it should say something, because if I'm watching in the end of season two of the Mandalorian, I'm like, dang, they broke up and then Cause now imagine you pick up the Mandalorian. And didn't watch the book of Boba Fett. You're like, how the hell did these two characters end up back together? Now you got to figure it out. Now you got to go watch this episode of book of Boba Fett, which you didn't plan to do, which is funny. Cause it's like the best parts of the TV show. <laughs> Low key was those Mandalorian episodes. And now you got to go back, watch those, and then come back to season one or episode one of season three of The Mandalorian. It's too much going on. Um, and so there's two things there. One, if you're going to do it, or one, it probably shouldn't have be done in the first place. You can't make them like special Mandalorian episodes or something. Don't just make, put it in the book of Boba Fett. First thing. Second thing, if you're going to try to retcon it and bring it back, explain that. Say previously on the book of Boba Fett. They don't do that. They should probably do that. Put it somewhere. What's Even if you don't put it on the previous... Put like a statement. I don't know. Do something. Help out your viewer. Hold the viewer's hand to where they need to go. That's what you're supposed to be doing. And they just didn't do that. Um, and, and it's something they should be doing.
1: Yeah, because now two episodes in, they still have not addressed that. And I think that that's just one of the problems where it just doesn't It just doesn't really make sense. It's like, okay, if they wanted to take the Book of Boba Fett in that direction to further advance the story of Din Djarin before we get to The Mandalorian Season 3 fine that's not unprecedented territory we've seen it in other shows mm-hmm. occur before but to just not call back to that moment at the top of season three of the mandalorian to not just have the title screen say previously on the mandalorian and the book of boba fett that's it's it. just a simple fix that they just chose not to do i don't know <laughs> maybe maybe they don't want to call attention to a show that people didn't like perhaps that's it i don't, I don't get it i don't know but it, it's a weird choice nonetheless for a show that has often been steeped with, hey, you don't have to have that much baggage to come in and enjoy this. You can just kind of show up whenever and you'll mm-hmm. find enjoyment out of it because it is a very simple story. It follows a formula for the most part. And there's just a few key elements that will make you just like want to keep tapping into it. And so I think that they just kind of abandoned the things that have already worked for The Mandalorian for you know almost three years at this point now. But speaking of formula, one other thing that I do want to address about The Mandalorian, it has been a story of formula where I think the first two seasons, we've often seen a lot of scenarios where Din Djarin, played by Pedro Pascal, has to rescue Grogu. He's often finding himself in perilous situations because Grogu, at the end of the day, is a baby. Even though in his species, he's 53 years old, which, you know, I'm looking at myself at 53 years old, I'm like, I'm I'm an old-ass man. But for his species, 53 is super, super young, so he's still a little baby. So Grogu ends up in some really shitty situations sometimes. He's doing some things he should not be doing. And Din Djarin has to rescue him a lot. He has to, you know, typically go out of his way. They're on a mission and he has to figure out a way to rescue Grogu from some sort of monstrous figure or some sort of weird alien creature. But I find that at the top of the season, it feels like we are starting to switch gears with the story, which I think is a good thing at the, at the, at the end of the day. But we're focusing more on on the the journey of Din Djarin because with those sort of special episodes within the book of Boba Fett we found out that he's been exiled from his Mandalorian tribe because he removed his mask which occurred in the Mandalorian season two and so now Mm -hmm. he's being outcast because that is absolutely forbidden you cannot remove your mask and what we're finding here in the story of the Mandalorian season three is him going on what feels like some sort of a spiritual journey to sort of yeah reconcile that fact, to, to to amend the fact, or to, uh to yeah, to reconcile the fact that he he did something that was forbidden, and now he has to, you know, basically appease any Mandalorian, you know, that's willing to hear his case out to make sure that he can, you know, still maintain his status as a Mandalorian, and so we touch on that in, in episode one, see, episode two of season three, we see him actually go to Mandalore to look for the living waters, which essentially, if he can bathe in the living waters, he can, you know, start the process of, be, of being accepted back, but what do you think about just switching gears there to, to the fact that, it seems like it might not be so much of a of a situation where Din Djarin is rescuing Grogu every single week and, and ultimately raising him as, as, his, as his protector and now sort of a fatherly figure. And it's now sort of focusing more so on what Din Djarin has to do. The fact that he has to go through a very elaborate process essentially to, 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 to gain back what essentially is his birthright. Something that was given to him at a very, very young age. And he's going to pretty much be willing to do whatever it takes to be accepted back into his tribe.
2: I think something important to note um, again in those 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 final episodes of the Book of Boba Fett that happened as again pertaining to the Mandalorian is the growth that Grogu has had since. Grogu was no longer the child that is completely helpless anymore. Right? He now understands at least to some degree his force sensitivity he at least now has the ability to use that <laughs> in 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 certain moments and certain ways we see him already kind of using it for not so good things like grabbing cookies or something ridiculous right but not only i think i think that helps moving into the future because he isn't as helpless as he used to be he has also grown and so i like the idea that jin jarn doesn't always have to be like, all right, Grogu, time to go save him, where there's some moments, I think, which we'll even see more throughout the season, where he can save himself, where Grogu can save himself. Use the force, bro. Get out of it. You know what I mean? Figure it out, because that is the training that he has went through for, it was a short period of time, but that he went through 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 a period of time. And I think that's that should be noted in the way that the show is structured. And I'm hoping that, is one of the reasons they're moving away from that, right? Then from every episode, him being saved, because now there are there's opportunity for him to save himself. Not only that, but of course there's the obvious, where it's like, that gets exhausting after a while. <laughs> we can't just see him continuously get saved every week. I think it works for a long period of time, but I think when you enter a period for a character's training arc or character development, there should be something that comes out of that. And I think, um, you know, them moving into more... Uh, uh, Mando can now go on this journey with Grogu versus Mando going on this journey to protect Grogu, or you know what I mean, or Grogu having uh having to be under his wing and things like that. So I think it makes sense um the way they're going about it. I like it um again because you can't keep doing that every week where Grogu's in trouble, and like up oh, gotta go save the child. But now I think you can have a, a, a little bit more adventures of camaraderie. Before we had adventures where. Jen Jarn is the protector. Now it's time to move on. Now he has, he's still a child. Don't get me wrong. But now he has, he has a partner who has been, a, has, has had a little bit of training who can maybe enter these, uh, uh these situations with him versus being um a damsel <laughs> in distress, per se, or, or the kid that's, that's, that's in trouble. So I, I like the decision.
1: Yeah. Ap- apparently. So that training was actually a long time, which they did not point to this in the storytelling, but Jon Favreau, Revealed that Grogu was allegedly training with Luke for two years, which my God, where did that come from? I, but he, two he years. Said, he <laughs> said that in an interview that he was training for two years. And so by the time Mando reaches him, it's like, yo, he is supposed to be experienced and like ready to go, as, as, as you were alluding to that. Yes, he's still a baby and still an infant, but he's definitely progressed mm-hmm. and evolved over time. And so, I think a lot of what we saw in episode two—the fact that like Grogu has to now become sort of the rescuer, the protector—that's exactly. like the focus of what happens in episode two. He has to, he has to, you know, sort of use that that training that he's accumulated over the course of those two years and, and put it into mm-hmm. action. Um, one last quick thing I want to talk about before we wrap up here is the presence of Bo-Katan, and I think the the fact that mm. she feels like she's going to be even more integral this season than she has been before, sort of alluding to the fact of what we just said that è I do think that the formula of the show is starting to change it's becoming much less about the fact that like Mando has to figure out how to escape a situation with Grogu and make sure he's protected and it's going to be more so about the history of the Mandalorians and what they represent in this just just this world and Katie Sackhoff interestingly enough has a co-credit on this show alongside Pedro Pascal now that did not used to be the case and so I think her presence Mm -hmm. here is going to absolutely be something that they focus and hone in on especially after episode two she is certainly you know taking charge of being you know certainly at the forefront of the story in terms of her relationship to the history of the Mandalorians and what they represented and just like her family history and lineage, the fact that she comes from royalty. What do you you know sort of foresee with her character? What are you excited about potentially? Because I find it I find it fascinating that you know Bo Katan is, is a character that was created for animation. You know, she premiered in the yes. Clone Wars and now mm-hmm. coming into live action is going to have just such a it seems like such a very, very important role in just the storytelling of what's going to happen, especially considering her and Din. Just have different ideologies all together about this Mandalorian shit. We, we, we see them clash and butt heads all the time. Yeah. So what are you looking forward to to seeing out of their relationship?
2: Uh, one, I'm just excited to see Bo-Katan at all. The fact that she's in the show. Again, we've seen her, I think it was season two It was the first time we seen her. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just remember being excited that I, I just really love when animated characters that I know come to, you know, into the Mandalorian because um, I think Ahsoka is going to kind of go through the same thing where we're like, this girl was created for animation. What are you going to do in this real world? And I think we're seeing that thing with Bo-Katan um, in real time as well. And I think their relationship is its very warranted for me personally because we haven't had a consistent female lead. Ahsoka was in like one episode, you know what I mean? We have, we have yet to really see a consistent female lead in this show. And I think Bo-Katan can not only provide us that, but now, the way she's beginning to be embedded here, she is going to be the consistent, the most consistent thing in the Star Wars universe, knowing where she comes from, from the animation world. This is like Dave Filoni's chance to be like, this is how it's all connected. In fact, later down the line, shoot, Bo-Katan and Ahsoka have a whole thing. You know what I mean? Like, there's a lot that that can be done there. There's a lot that I think is going to be done. Um, but I love that Bo-Katan can be... Somewhat the person that shakes up our Mandalorian, right? He can be the person that shakes up Jin Jarn a little bit. Like you said, they're very different. Jin Jarn isn't like the most out of there, extrovert <laughs> kind of guy in the world, you know what I'm saying? But Bo Katan, she really, she's a leader. And I think she's going to bring some of those things out of Jin Jarn, whether they agree on something or don't agree on something or whichever way it goes in order uh, uh, to get. Uh, to, to progress the story <laughs> at the end of the day so i think she's a very good addition here i hope we continue to see more of her even when we, i seen her episode one just pop up i was like oh shoot bo katan's here <laughs> you know kind of type thing and so uh, uh i i welcome um everything they're doing with bo katan right now
1: yeah they, they they're they're two characters are both at very different places you know mando is is sort of in a phase of rehabilitation you know trying to achieve his former glory because he's been sort of disgraced and exile. But then Bo-Katan, what I'm experiencing from her character, a lot of the emotions feel like she's in mourning almost. You know, she feels yeah. very just, I think apathetic to everything that's happening. Like she's sitting in that throne room, but like, what is she doing? She doesn't really have anything to do. She just sits there, you know, because her home world is not what it used to be. And when, when they visit Mandalore in, in episode two, I mean, you could just look and tell she is very distraught at the sight of it. it, it it's not it's not in the state of its former glory at all. And mm-hmm. she used to see it very much like how it used to be. It kind of reminded me of weirdly enough, like from Marvel when Thanos mm-hmm. went back to Titan on in, in Infinity yeah. War and he just like looked on his home world and he was like this place used to be it used to be incredible it used to be thriving and now look at it you know it's 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 desolate yeah. and and that's kind of where she's at with her character so i just can't wait to see how that that conflict continues to bubble up between her and Din Djarin, because they're going to butt heads more but they're also going to have to rely on each other because they kind of need each other exactly. at this particular point so it'll mm-hmm. be very very interesting to see but folks Those are our thoughts on the first two episodes of Season 3 of The Mandalorian. If you've checked out the first two episodes, hit us up and let us know what you think, and we will definitely be back to talk about this season as it progresses. And with that that being said, we're going to transition and talk about our final TV series of the week. Of course, we have to check in and recap the latest episode of the HBO original series, The Last of Us. In fact, it's the season finale, the season one finale of the series that we have been recapping and covering Every single week, we have now reached the end of this story, and boy, it was something else to see this game come to life, all together in fruition. They actually pulled it off, they adapted a video game from beginning to end, in a way that we haven't really seen before, out of other video game adaptations, and so now we have a complete picture of everything that we've seen out of this story, and we're going to dive into spoilers and talk about all the big moments of this episode, but before we do that, man, I just want to get your big picture thoughts about this week's season finale of The Last of Us, what did you think and was it satisfying for you?
2: I really, really, really love the show, man. Um, this episode in particular, I was very excited coming into it, um, but I have my doubts about the runtime allotted. I think it's 44 minutes to be exact. And I, I, I a lot of my reservations I had, I think came to fruition in this episode where I was afraid that it wasn't enough time to feel the way I think I was supposed to feel by the, 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 the way that by the end of the season. And I still feel like they could have fixed some of the problems I have with this episode by adding 15 to 20 minutes. I really do. Um, that being said, it's still a good episode. I am just slightly upset that it's not great because I feel like they could have made it great. <laughs> but it, it's fine, man. It, it, it doesn't fall completely flat for me. There are a couple of strokes of brilliance actually in this episode that I really enjoy. It is. It's, I'm kind of sad that it's already over. I like, really, we blinked. Like we literally, we sat here and potted about every episode. <laughs> now I'm hearing like, it last month, like it just that, started. <laughs> is it really over? <laughs> is it? Are we really talking about this? Um, but what a ride it's been. I I I still very much um like this episode. I still very much love the work that Pedro Pascal and Bella Ramsey are doing here in this episode, man. I just really needed there's there's something about this episode that just feels like it's missing. It's something that feels like it's missing. And uh I I was really looking forward to that not being the case, but it just happens to be the case, man. I won't add I think too much more than that, but still a good episode I think you know we'll talk about overarching how we feel about you know the season in general man but uh it's a it's a fine finale just not the finale that I was hoping to get
1: coming into this week there there was a lot that had to be achieved and certainly the pressure is on to deliver something with this story as it wraps up and and leads us into season two whenever we do get that there there's just high expectations especially considering that this is material that millions of people have seen before and so As it relates to it being a near one-for-one translation of what we saw in the video game, I think in that respect, they knocked it out of the park. I think that you couldn't have done it any better in terms of absolutely staying completely faithful to the final act of this story, to the final pieces Mm -hmm. of this story, which is definitely something that has to be noted and respected, and I'm appreciative of because you need that to to, to a certain degree because the game pretty much ended flawlessly that first game like it, it it ends on an emotional gut punch unlike many other video games have ever done yep. That being said I, I have to I have to agree with you that though I can recognize that and though that that's the case I do think that the the dramatic heft and the weight of this felt a little absent for me mm-hmm. just because it felt like we got here maybe a little too quickly and I think that, some of those reservations and cautions that we've been talking about over the past couple of weeks have, have sort of alluded to that. You know, the fact that the previous two episodes didn't really have Joel in it. Like, Joel was lying on his back for most part. We, we were re- really getting to know Ellie, which is important, especially as it relates to moving the story forward as we get to part two eventually when that comes. But I think that for, for everything that has to happen with the relationship between these two characters that we've been following week to week... There just have to be certain conversations and certain sequences and set pieces and things that just occur that make you really feel that emotional connection to everything that's unfolding, especially with just the events of this final episode. Uh, Mm -hmm. To a degree, I certainly still felt it because the way that they employed other characters and how they utilized them to sort of be to be that sounding board for what we were seeing with Ellie and Joel and to be that that reflection of their relationship was useful and it was good. But now in hindsight, I do wonder if this sort of this sort of, you know, sort of character of the week structure that they had, I wonder how useful it was. There was no way around it because there's characters that you have to introduce just based off of their presence in the video game, mm-hmm. but this show very much lived by a structure that every single week we're going to meet somebody new, and we're pretty much mm-hmm. going to stick with that person just for that episode and then move on. And I just wonder was that the best way to distribute out the story? Was there a better way to maybe even this out, make it feel a little bit more impactful by the end of it? Uh, that being said, though, I, I will have to just note that these are sort of nitpicks. And in the grand scheme of things, I think that this is a tremendous achievement, what they were able to pull Agreed. off with the show. It's unlike mm-hmm. anything else we've ever seen from a video game adaptation. Uh, they they, they kind of knocked it out of the park. And I mean, when you're talking about staying faithful to a story that so many people love, they mostly did it. You know, there were some deviations that were important and key, but they mostly did what mm-hmm. they had to do to, to stay true to what The Last of Us is. But with all of that said, if you've not seen the season finale of The Last of Us, go watch it. Go watch it right now. Literally stop this episode and watch it right now and come back and listen to the rest of our conversation because we're going to spoil everything, which means we obviously have to start off with the beginning, which is a flashback in which we haven't seen a flashback, I think, in a few weeks here. I think it's been a while since we've gotten a flashback to kick off an episode of The Last of Us. They were used in the Mm -hmm. first few episodes in a very effective way to establish the global threat of what the Cordyceps and the infected were going to be for this world and for this society But this flashback is notable because we get the introduction of a new character in this universe that was not seen in the video games called Anna. And Anna is the mother of Ellie. But in addition to that, Anna is being played in live action by Ashley Johnson, who noticeably played Ellie in the video game. She's, you know, been Ellie for 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 such a long time now and and it's so weird even at the top of this episode where you hear Ashley Johnson's voice it's like oh my god I'm hearing Ellie literally as we're crazy. watching the TV series <laughs> it was it was a weird feeling but to open up this episode we see her sort of fleeing away from an infected person she's trying to hide out in the house she is very pregnant she is about to deliver like in mere moments and this creature this infected you know breaks into the house and she has to defend herself and her baby from the infected but she does end up getting bit in the process. And she also has to self-deliver this baby herself. Nobody is there to help her or to you know, make sure that it's a, a, a proper procedure. She has to do this on her own in this house alone. And we see the birth of Ellie literally unfold right before our very eyes. And we thus see the events unfold after that where we we find out that Marlene, who we haven't seen in quite a long time, I think probably since episode two, Marlene and Anna had a very close relationship. They've been best mm-hmm. friends almost their entire lives. But because Anna has been bitten, she tells Marlene, you need to take care of this baby. Her name is Ellie. Kill me immediately once I hand this baby over to you. Marlene is obviously very hesitant to do so. This is somebody she's known for her whole life, but she does proceed to ultimately kill Anna and put her, I think, essentially out of her misery so that she doesn't have to see her transform into an infected. But man, what did you think about just this emotional opening? The fact that they were able to cleverly deploy ashley johnson in this episode literally to be the person to give birth to the character that she gave birth to in video games and she's doing it in live action now uh just the parallels there what did you think about her performance and just seeing this whole thing unfold
2: it's low-key poetic man this is one of the it's it could be it's it's probably top five scenes for me i think in this show because i feel like i can talk about the scene for like a long time it means so much i think to the show and where we've come from And where we are now, and what they're trying to do by introducing the scene into the beginning of the finale of the episode, I think this was very, very, very well done. Um, And just in terms of everything, man, I very much enjoyed the opening of this episode and the fact that it's Ashley Johnson. It's I can't even like explain how genius it is. (laughs) They really killed it, man. Neil Druckmann and Craig Mazin literally came in was like Ashley Johnson you're going to give birth to yourself. (laughs) And it's, it's, I know it sounds crazy. It's just so much more poetic than that though. I think the ways in which they decided to convey this thing, man, because in the video game, this, this doesn't exist. You don't know why Ellie, this is, we don't know why Ellie's immune. This really is an origin story for for Ellie's immunity in some form or fashion, but the way they do it Just makes so much sense and there's there's so many little tidbits and I don't even know how long the scene was 15 minutes 10 minutes it's there's so many little tidbits in this part that you again you could really just explain so much about it man the fact that Ashley Johnson comes in and like you said the episode begins and even in the way she breathes if you play the video game you're like is that Ellie? <laughs> you just like you don't even really see her yet at first, right? it's like low key a little reveal that it's Ashley Johnson. But the way she's running, the way she's talking, you're like, that's Ashley Johnson. They done brought in this woman who plays Ellie in the video games for 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 this scene, man. And you get to it and there's so much tension. You know, shout out to like Really cool pregnancy scenes in recent memory, because House of Dragon was killing it with the pregnancy scenes, and I have to add this to it. I think it was really dope. Um, but imagine being chased, chased by this infected, and your water breaks. It also reminds me of a Quiet Place, right? Where it's like, out of all the times to give birth, this is the time where I'm getting chased. <laughs> like, are you sick Like, it's an you damn baby. Induced- God damn it, stand inside It's, <laughs> it's an anxiety induced baby. Like, I almost feel- if she wasn't being chased, she wouldn't have had the child, right? But then she gets into this room, fights this infected, and all of a sudden there's a baby there. Like we don't hear her moan through the pregnancy. There's not a lot of time in between which her her water breaks and the baby comes out. It's instant. Like it's the fastest time I think I've ever seen a baby <laughs> actually actually happen. But it's it's there's so many again different meanings in this situation. There's so many things and nuances about it that explains the rest of again the episode or things about the season that is it was just so well done man the fact that Marlene comes in and has to kill her best friend while taking care of of what well, technically she didn't have to take care of uh of Ellie in fact she kind of doesn't right <laughs> like in fact Marlene gives her the Fedra <laughs> even though it, it just it's, it's small things like that, man. That's just really there's there's a lot that could be talked about. And so I, I appreciated um, the scene. I love the way it was done. The the uh, the stunt actress, whatever you want to call her with the infected 10 out of 10. I think she did a tremendous job. She looked crazy. I was scared for her, but I really did love the scene. A super
1: effective opening, especially at the end of a season, at the end of this particular portion of the story, to further provide additional context and motivation to the character of Ellie, who is so important and integral to everything that we're seeing. And the intensity in the scene was just at such a high level. And Ashley Johnson was amazing in in this role to see a mother doing whatever it took to protect her child in the heat of the moment in the in the worst possible situation is Mm -hmm. just an awe-inspiring thing to see and and you mentioned the fact that it felt poetic not only because it is Ashley Johnson who is obviously tied to Ellie for life but also I think the fact that in this moment of just being in a undoubtedly dire situation she's absolutely resistant to the idea of succumbing to the infected like And that translates to who Ellie is as a person. Ellie is very Mm -hmm. resistant to a lot of things. She's a fighter. She doesn't give up. And I think we see that in her mother in these small moments and the small amount of time that we get to spend with her that she herself was a fighter and she was going to do whatever it took to survive in that moment to give birth to Ellie to make sure that she was going to be safe and protected. And so all of that stuff was just brilliantly done. And the fact that. Neil Druckmann apparently was just, like, sitting on this idea. Like, he's been thinking about this for a long time because Craig Mazin got this from him. He's like, wait, you want to do what? Why why haven't we talked (laughs) about this? It's a brilliant thing to to employ in the series Mm -hmm. because, again, it just adds so much. And I think even more importantly, it adds a lot for the Marlene character because in the video game, we don't get to really understand why Marlene feels so closely connected to Ellie. We don't really understand that by the end of this, when we see the transaction between her and Joel... And how they're butting heads and they do not see eye to eye on the decision on the fate of Ellie, we don't really understand, well, well why should Marlene care so much about this person? Like, yeah, we've yeah. been alluding to the fact that she knows her and she has some sort of relationship, but we don't really understand. Now, with this, we see Marlene was literally there for her birth. Like, mm-hmm. and her best friend, Ellie's mother, told her, hey, this is your responsibility now. Like, you need to take care of her. She might have faltered over the years, but that's something that's never left her. And so by the end of this episode, when we see her and Joel going back and forth, and she's like, you have no idea. I'm the only person that understands how difficult this decision is to to effectively kill her to create a cure. That is, that's crazy, just full circle stuff that you can't really manufacture. You have to, you have to ingrain that into the DNA of the character. So it was an excellent way to open this episode. I thought it was tremendous. To move on, though, we do come back to the present day. Joel and Ellie are in Salt Lake City, Utah. Joel has now fully recuperated. He is doing, it seems like it's okay now, and we get a very pivotal scene once we reconnect with Joel and Ellie that I've been waiting on that's also a pivotal scene in the video game, and that's the meeting of this herd of giraffes. You know, they're walking through Salt Lake as a town, which is, you know, obviously abandoned as many cities are. In the society, but some wild giraffes are just kind of wandering around the area, and Ellie sees it, and her eyes just become really, really wide. She's probably never seen a giraffe before, you know, this is a first-time experience for her, and it's a really tender moment between those two characters. I think another one of those moments that just shows the humanity and the connection, because right now they they really aren't speaking to to each other. Ellie just went through some really traumatic shit. Joel also just went through some really traumatic shit, so it feels like it's kind of hard for them to talk to each other. But this moment with the giraffes brings them together. And then after that, after they see the giraffes, we get Joel probably being the most vulnerable he's been up until this point. He essentially admits to Ellie that he tried to kill himself after the death of his daughter, Sarah. And ultimately, Mm -hmm. he says a really, I think a really poignant and effective line, you know, because Ellie says, you know, time heals all wounds, right? And Joel's like, no, it wasn't time. Essentially telling her, like, you were the person that healed my wounds. You now are essentially my new daughter that I'm that I'm you know sort of taking ownership of like you you filled that void in my heart that I've been living with for 20 years what did you think about just seeing them come together again for like this kind of final huge interaction between the two where they actually are on the same page they're sharing a really strong emotional connection with each other I think after everything that they've been through just showing how far they've come on an emotional level with both of their characters
2: yeah it's so interesting because uh, this is one of the moments in the show where it's very clear um, in the finale that what's happened, the dynamic that we have now was very different from those opening episodes, man, where back then Ellie was the chatterbox, right? And Joel was like, hey, I don't know. Really. Now the opposite is happening. Joel's trying to, you know, kind of talk to Ellie a little bit. He's trying to, you know, trying to get in there. And because I think, you know, at the end of the last episode, he has really accepted Ellie as his new daughter in that way man as soon as that baby girl hits there's a new dynamic between between those two characters and so I I I really love that you could at least see that difference man that difference in character development and where they the 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 journey in which they've come I really love the herd of giraffes man because even in the video game this is not a playable moment right this is just us watching (laughs) Ellie and Joel kind of feed giraffes but this this is a reminder of one, The Last of Us isn't just some random zombie outbreak, right? This is a somewhat of a commentary of the world fixing itself, or the world taking back, you know, some of the uh, the things that humans have done to it we don't, we didn't really get to see that much of it in the, um, in the TV show. I remember, I think it's episode six or seven. We see the, we see the monkeys, right? And we're like, okay, the monkeys are different though. They're like already kind of wild. Seeing giraffes run around way more peaceful animals than, than apes are monkeys run around and just eating leaves off of things. To me, that's that's the definition of like reclaiming your space right I even I even remember uh this is kind of a little bit off topic but in the MCU in in Endgame remember there was like ports had opened up the waters were clear because people weren't there to dirty them up anymore this is another one of those moments to me that was like giraffes are just running around while infected are running around. that's two completely different things that exist in the world but Ellie and Joel are able to 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 share this moment um, in a small ounce of beauty that does exist in their particular world together. This is the closest that Joel is going to get to taking his daughter to the zoo. You know what I'm saying? It's the closest that he he, he's really going to get. And I I talked about this before, but there's so much joy in Ellie. As much as she's she's a fighter, in which we talk about between her mother Anna, right? Where she's like, ah, you're a tough one. As much as she's a fighter, Ellie's a fighter. This is still the girl that tends to bring a lot of light into the world, as much as dark that we see in Ellie, which we definitely seen last episode, The Darkness in Ellie. But when she sees that giraffe, she's like, come on, come on. We got to go. It's something about that, man. It's very small moments and glimpses of happiness and joy in the the joys of the world that you get out of this that always makes that moment feel perfect to me. And so I, I really love that they recreated it one to one.
1: Yeah, this had to happen, too. You know, I think that's one of those things where you get these two characters who have gone through the worst shit possible. And, and so now they finally have just a moment of peace and silence to come together and to relate to something. And I think it's just really key for them to have one final moment of joy before the very next scenes occur, mm-hmm. because that's what Joel is going to be remembering in his head once he awakes in the hospital and he finds out like, oh, wait, y'all are trying to have surgery on on Ellie his most recent memory is something very positive and he also had to save her, you know, so I think a lot of these things that have recently occurred where she has gone above and beyond to overextend herself to make sure that he survived and he's also done the same for her, they have this mutual relationship, this very protective relationship for each other that is just, it's unbreakable almost, you know, but we also find out that as, as strong as it is and as, as as endearing as it might be to see that they truly actively love each other, there is a flip side to love, too. There is a dangerous, maybe a more dangerous side to love to where you are willing to do some things that are questionable, to say the least. Mm-hmm. And we, we see that manifest later in this episode. But I think that this final moment with those two And the herd of giraffes, you know, in this open, this open area was just, it was key. Again, it was one of those things where you don't need to change it at all from the video game because it was already so perfect. And it was just like one of those really tender moments. Finally, just showing us like one last ounce of innocence in Ellie, because I think that after all of this, there is no more innocence. We we kind of lose that completely after the events yeah. of this episode, especially going into part two. So this is kind of the last time we get to see her just like being joyous and just being open and willing to just like have fun in a small moment. After that, they're attacked by some firefly firefly soldiers, and Joel wakes up in the hospital to Marlene, and Marlene reveals something just tragic to Joel that they essentially are about to prepare Ellie for surgery because. They're gonna to have to take out samples for her brain because the cordyceps, which is the reason for the infected, they can be applied to other people essentially to stop the infection from spreading. Because we know that Ellie has been immune somehow, and so this cordyceps, this sort of this immunity has to be developed. But the only way that they can do it is to take it from her brain, effectively killing her. You know, they have to essentially kill her in order to create a humani- create a cure that can save all of humanity. Joel, I think, obviously in this moment. Is not for this. He does not want this at all. He loves her too much. The The idea that he's going to lose essentially another daughter, you know, it's just, it's unbearable. We, we just got the moment of him revealing, like, I almost killed myself after my daughter died. Like, he probably would not survive this if, if, if he were to allow that to happen or if they were to forcibly make it happen and have Ellie ultimately succumb to the surgery. But we get this back and forth between him and Marlene, again, these differing ideologies. Marlene is willing to make the difficult choice. Because she does know Ellie, and she has had a relationship with her for a long time, but she hasn't exactly lost a daughter. She's lost a best friend, absolutely, but she's not She's not exactly in Joel's position where Joel is looking at this person as somebody that he has to protect, somebody that he has to nurture and make sure is mm-hmm. is safe in all, in all respects. And so what we see happen after, again, all just one-for-one one translations of what happened in the video game, Joel goes on an absolute violent rampage in the hospital. He kills countless amounts of firefly soldiers he just runs through the hospital killing one after one after one i mean i I don't know he probably killed like 17 18 soldiers in the sequence it's a really violent scene ultimately to rescue ellie and he kills the one surgeon also operating on her so he's willing to do whatever it takes to get, get her out of that hospital what do you think about just this moment and how they unfolded it again i think it's it's all stuff we we played out exactly in the video game but these two people marlene and joel who essentially have both been tasked with making sure that Ellie is safe. They now have to Mm -hmm. figure out how to make a really, really tough decision. What did you think about that?
2: So I want to preface this by saying um, the the part of this episode that is missing for me is in the game, there's one last stand where Ellie and Joel are fighting infected (laughs) like through a tunnel with like a flamethrower. And I think that's one of the key components that is missing out of this episode is it's not just the giraffes, right? It's that one last moment between Ellie and Joe, I think fighting together that makes me feel like they got here slightly too fast. Um, And that could have elevated, I think, this part of the episode in the show for sure had they added that because we actually haven't seen that many infected in a while. I was hoping for one more swarm or (laughs) i don't know you know what i mean one more group uh fight of infected before we got here just to hammer it home a little bit that being said though i really still do like the way they played out the, the the hospital scene with joel going around and killing the fireflies i love that i love the music i love the camera work actually the way they were moving around the hospital and i think this is we've we've seen Joel's I think sinister nature throughout the episode especially last episode where he's killing um, David's people trying to look for Ellie we've seen but we've never seen it like this we've never seen where there are literally people cowering in the corner like don't shoot me of course those people he was interrogating said it too but it's something about this in a hospital where people are legit giving up and being like no don't shoot me he's like Nah, bro, you got to die. Like it is like fire in his eyes, man. This is like a, a such a heartbreaking part in the TV show. And, you know, this is I, I have to talk about Joel and Marlene in, in, in comparison because they're so for a while, you know, it, it they've had so many differences in the ways in which they protect Ellie. Something I wanted to note that honest that Anna said Ellie's mom before she actually gives Uh, before she actually takes the baby is she doesn't say you have to be the one to take care of her of Ellie she actually says um, she actually says find somebody to take care of her not insinuating that it has to be Marlene and I think that's so interesting because after that moment Marlene does somewhat become Ellie's mom right like this is the woman that at least looks after her in some capacity although Ellie's with Fedra it's it's very interesting the best way that 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 Marlene, the best way that she could take care of Ellie was to literally put her in the enemy's camp. I think that's so interesting. That's like a whole another thing. But there's there's always been a connect between the two of Ellie and Marlene. Again, that's it's her makeshift mom, but there's a disconnect there. Cause it's not like they spend a ton of time together. It's not like Marlene is popping up like, Auntie Marlene, here to see you. How's <laughs> how's everything uh uh going here? And so I think it's so interesting between the ways in which Marlene protects Ellie so differently from the way Joel has to protect Ellie. And we've come to the the crossroads when we get to the hospital, Marlene's moral compass is I absolutely love Ellie. Her mom was my best friend, but her moral compass says in this moment in time, my morality, my morality points to humanity. I must sacrifice my makeshift daughter, my niece, whatever you want to call her, in order to save humanity versus Joel who this broken man who lost a daughter who found another one simply can't stand to lose another one he can't he can't do it his brain can't take it his heart couldn't take it like you said right after we just talked about he tried to commit suicide after the first daughter you can bet you best believe how many people I'm about to kill in order for this not to happen again and it's you have to have a like you said it's, it's almost uh uh the dark parts of love right you almost have to have something snap inside you to do what joel did and that's exactly what happens man he can't he can't let her go it's heartbreaking he can't he can't let this girl go who he, he now sees as a daughter um and for the betterment of the world i think that's so interesting he can't sacrifice this one this this one girl who he probably he didn't meet that long ago to save the world. Um and yeah, man, it's just a crazy moment I think in all of Last of Us lore. This is one of the like the wildest moments to me in the, in the entire thing uh because it's it really is a question of what does humanity mean to you versus how how much do the people in front of you mean to you, right? There's probably plenty of people in the world where it's funny, it's no spoilers, but we Loki came uh came to the same crossroads and um knock at the cabin. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? It's almost like a similar, how much are you willing to sacrifice humanity to save the people in front of you? And I think that's such an interesting theme um, within The Last of Us, man. It's one of the more powerful things in conversation topics uh, to be had.
1: And they've been prepping us for this moment the entire season. Every, every person that Joel and Ellie have come into contact with have in essence told Joel indirectly and directly, you have to do whatever it takes to protect this person. Marlene first charged him with that, with that at the top of the series. We saw what happened, you know, with, with episode three and just the relationship with Bill and Frank in that in that episode mm-hmm. and how that really impacted Joel to, to a significant degree. Henry and Sam, they didn't directly tell them, like, yeah, protect each other, but just the way that they turned out, their fates is just a key reflection and a sign, like, oh my God, you know, we we have to make sure that we stick side by side and do whatever it takes. And I think by the time we get to this moment, Considering everything that Joel has been through, the fact that he almost lost his life, the fact that Ellie has lost people, the few people that she's been close with, the fact that she's lost them—like they really only have each other. And so, w- what was key about the post-episode sort of recap of this from the HBO, mm-hmm. from the HBO recap, is the fact that you know I think it was Neil Druckmann who said that you know this was the easiest Joel easiest easiest decision that Joel ever made in his life. You know, by this point in which re- which he reached him, mm-hmm. there is no consideration, there is nothing that has to be talked about. He's going to do whatever it takes to save her, which means murdering probably a dozen or more soldiers in the hospital, which is it's a really dark thing to, to witness because I like the fact that they didn't glorify this either. They didn't, they didn't turn it into like this big action scene where you're like rooting for Joel. They took mm-hmm. away a lot of the music. It was mostly echoes and screams of people. You just see the blood. You see the carnage that he's inflicting on so many people and the and the mercilessness. You know, the fact that he had no mercy against all these people. You talked about people cowering and, and surrendering and the fact that he 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 had no qualms about disposing of them as well. And so it all just reflects back onto just the depths and and how mm-hmm. far he's willing to go, which we've seen other instances of that, which were more, I think just knee-jerk reactions, like in the first episode where he just sort of snaps and kills that one Fedra soldier to protect her, that was just like a knee-jerk reaction, something that was off of instinct, that he's a he's a protective father, but now yeah. it's, it's fully manifested into the idea like, no, this is essentially my daughter. You know, not by blood, but by everything we've been through and just by how close we are and how connected we are, I'm gonna do whatever it takes, and you gotta find somebody else. Like, this isn't gonna work, and so we see that that goes even further because by the time we get to the garage, we think Joel and Ellie are going to escape. Joel is going to take Ellie who's unconscious and drive her away. Marlene f- finds him in the garage. There's one last chance for this to all be mended over. Marlene says like we're not too far ahead, we could still fix this. We could still do something about it. It's essentially a showdown between Marlene and Joel. She's trying to convince him like do what's right, do what needs to be done. To allow Ellie to undergo the surgery and to contribute to something that can literally save humanity and can save us from this hell that they've been living with for 20 years. And Joel essentially has no reaction to it and kills Marlene. And then, you know, ultimately drives away with Ellie and we, 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 we get it sort of presented to us in the same fashion as the video game we cut away to actually Joel driving the car before we see the fate of Marlene happen. The way that they revealed that Joel kills Marlene is by him recounting what occurred by talking to Ellie about it once she regains consciousness. So we not only see him lying about it, we also see the truth actually unfolding before our very eyes, and so it's a very interesting way to illustrate just everything that went down. I just wanna ask you, you know, one, not only what did you think about just that final showdown and just the probably the toughest and worst decision that Joel has had to make, but two, did he do the right thing? Because I had to ask you, because <laughs> that's been the conversation since the video game. Did you think at the time when you played the game, did he do the right thing? And now seeing the series and having maybe a little bit more context behind certain things, maybe a new life has been injected to the story. Did did the way that things played out in the series maybe change your mind about it? How, how do you feel about just the whole the whole situation and how it went down?
2: Yeah, man, the way... I, I really love the moment between Marlene and Joel man because it is it is legit the the showdown we get of probably the two people who have cared about Ellie the most throughout her entire life and it, it really comes down to what are which one of these two people have looked out I think for Ellie in terms of uh, uh, her life right in terms of the ways in which they go about things the ways in which I, I you know uh, Marlene is a person who as the leader of the Fireflies probably hasn't wasn't the safest right for for Ellie to be around and, and in that same idea is probably one of the reasons she's like ah, go to Fedra I can watch you from there I have to watch you from afar where well, Joel wasn't tasked the same way that that Marlene was tasked. He she was cargo <laughs> at the beginning of this and now the heartstrings have been pulled. They have been through things that Marlene and Ellie have never gone through. For sure. Um and and I think that creates a different uh uh kind of ending, you know, for Marlene in the way that Joel Joel kills her. Uh because it's it's like like you said um that that that, that Craig Mason says is the easiest decision of his life at that point. Sorry Marlene, you are no longer servicing Ellie's life. You have to die as well. Now, when it comes to did he do the right thing? I think that's the hardest question for anybody to ask. What I what I will say for sure is that he he stole Ellie's decision. And I don't think that's the right thing. Ellie is And I think he knows that, too. I think he very much knows that if Ellie was conscious of what it took to save the world, that Ellie would have bought in. Ellie has seen tragedy after tragedy. Ellie had to live through the death of Sam, in which she was hoping to, to save his life with her blood. Ellie knows she's on a mission to save the world. And she seems like a girl that absolutely would have given her life to save him. But he doesn't give her that autonomy. And for that, I have to say, he for that decision in particular, he did not make the right choice. I will also say Marlene also didn't give her a choice. She just knocked her out. <laughs> and for Ellie not to know anything that happened, for for them not to say, OK, Ellie, are you ready for this? They also didn't give her a choice. Um, and, and in some ways... Joel kind of counteracts the that decision and so it's it's a really weird moral compass thing going on here but he didn't give her the choice and I think for that reason I he 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 didn't there's no way he did technically the right thing. He may have not have done the right thing for Humanity he did the right thing for himself and I think that's interesting given everything that we know about Joel as a character, the way he lost Sarah, the way he 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 has killed people the way Tess has told him take care of her the way bill and uh frank left a a letter that was like you better not let nothing happen to this girl the way he has been tasked to protect this girl in some ways he did but in a lot of ways he didn't either so again it's 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 very it's a very hard thing to say black and white but i think if you look at it from he didn't give ellie the choice to make her own decision then I, i have to say he didn't make the right one
1: yeah, and I, I think I think the entire thing has to be approached with empathy because of everything Joel has experienced. But I, I've always firmly believed he didn't do the right thing. I I have mm-hmm. no people can't sway me otherwise because even beyond not giving her the choice, which that should have been what everybody led with, both Marlene and Ann Joel the Mm -hmm. reality is this man murdered a lot of people and did so in cold blood and also murdered somebody that trusted him in Marlene. And he was doing it out of a, out of a, out of a way to survive and to, and to basically hold Ellie as close to him as possible and to hold her near and dear. And so it was, it was not only the, 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 the agency that he essentially stole from Ellie, but it's also just the manner in which he did it to, to just mow down a bunch of soldiers which are you know they're they're there to do their job and they 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 probably don't all have the greatest moral compasses either like sure we could talk about that all day long but man you just have to you just have to know that this is gonna stir up a lot of consequences for just the future of his character and for ellie ellie as well because you can't do something like this that that, that's such a dark thing to to such a damning degree and nobody's going to be affected by it and nothing's going to happen. There's hell to pay for 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 everybody involved who's still walking, which is not many people after what Joel did. But this is it's a really dark thing. But but the empathy piece is like I have to still still understand like where he's coming from. I have to still understand and acknowledge the fact that, yeah. yo, he's been through some shit that most people shouldn't have to go through. And, and so from his vantage point, from his perspective, I mean, he's doing what any parent probably would do. And that's do whatever it takes to protect your child. At, at any cost, if that means mm-hmm. I gotta take down some some people, then I'm gonna do that. And and I can't I can't sit here and morally be against that. You know, I think that that's something that has to be acknowledged, and you have to reason with that, and think about that, and take that into consideration. A thousand percent, absolutely. Um, but 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 it's one of those things where you know the removal of her choice, plus just the implicate implications of what it could have meant for humanity. Like, come on, dude. Like there there's. There is a big, big decision to be made here that is not just about you. Like, yes, you are the central focal point of all of this, but there, there's something massive that could, could could occur here, and that's the change of just society and something that could, could could cure everybody from from the hell that everybody's been living with for for two plus decades at this point. So it's a tough thing. I think that people could fall on either side, and you can provide really, really good, reasonable cases as to what it what it all might mean, but. What's even more upsetting about it is the fact that he lies blatantly to Ellie's face by the end of this, which is the final scene of this mm-hmm. of this episode. You know, she she walks away with Joel and they they've reached Wyoming. They're gonna settle there. And she just asks him, you know, tell me the truth. Tell me that everything you said about the fireflies is true, and I will follow you to the ends of the earth, essentially. And he lies directly to her face, and that's the end of this season. That's the final, the final point of this story. And so we'll have to pick up with season two whenever that does come back around, but Just thinking about that, thinking about the fact that he had to lie and just you know carry this lie with him. The fact that she kind of knows that he's lying, I think that that's easy to Mm -hmm. spot and tell, but she's just going to choose to believe what he what he tells her. You know, how are you feeling about just the way everything ended off and just wrapping up? You know, this whole season and just how they executed the story, bringing this into live action. And the big question is, you know, for you, is this the greatest? video game adaptation that we've seen thus far in in both TV and film we we now have a complete picture what's your overall outlook on that
2: so round off the episode uh, it is one of the most perfect endings to a game (laughs) that I've ever played for sure because you know exactly what Joel has done and as you just said you understand everything that he has just done but I think the important part is that you can't forgive him for it. And to me, that is one of the most complicated ideas and feelings that a video game has ever given me. A lot of times video games are very definitive. I beat the last boss. <laughs> I have won the world. I saved the princess. You know what I'm saying? It's always, it's a little more black and white. But here, man, it's something different about the, the scene between Joel and Ellie, especially you, like you said, we don't feel that Ellie trusts Joel. We don't feel that in that moment that she's like, okay, I believe you. But I I do feel like she says, okay, at the end of the episode, but while she may not believe him, I think she also understands him. And I think she also plays back the things that they've been through in her head and in, in some ways in this moment, kind of just accepts what Joel is saying to her. And again, I think that's one that's, that's good storytelling to me. Um, in order to get to the point at which we've gotten. With that being said, this is absolutely the greatest video game adaption we've ever gotten. Simple as that. Uh, we've talked about this in and out. Detective Pikachu, Sonic One and Two, Mortal Kombat movies. It's the best video game adaption we've ever got. It is. It's with the moments in which it's one to one. It's near perfect. A lot of the things they introduce to to add more layers to the source material were very well done very good example um is 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 the uh, uh the addition of ashley johnson here who's given birth to herself while, while having stakes in the character and things just think it's little things like that you can that they're they're do, they did in this show that really just elevated it i think to another level and while I will say the beginning of the show held up a little bit more than the end of the show did those first, really the first half of the season was like crazy compared to the, the second half of the season. I think for me, what could have made it even better is one of the things they do so well in the show is they take a, a lot of the human parts of the last of us and they harp on those. What something that it is missing in the, by these last couple episodes is the video game nature of it all I think there's a little bit of video game missing in these last couple episodes I kind of speak on this on this uh on this episode in particular where there's like a big fight sequence in a tunnel with Ellie and Joel before this with a flamethrower you know what I'm saying I think a lot of people watching this show a lot of us of course we want to see the human parts that's what makes it great what also makes it great is the infected and I feel like we didn't get enough of that Throughout the entire series, the there was a couple early moments we got it. I think it's episode two, episode three. We got a lot of that, but by the the last couple episodes, we didn't get enough of that. Um, and so I was hoping to get a little bit more of that. But again, it's the best video game adaption. HBO, Craig Mazin, Neil Druckmann, all p- Pedro Pascal, Bella Ramsey. Man, I I as much as I ha- I nitpick, I almost couldn't have even asked for a better making of 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 the video game in this way man they did a tremendous job across the board and i'm i'm just proud you know as somebody who has played the games who last of us is one of my favorite games i've ever played i'm very much looking to look into for uh future seasons of this tv show because as both me and you know this is not where last of us ends it gets low-key even crazier (laughs) there's a lot to be done in this tv show man but man very very proud of what we have here i think it's an amazing uh uh, product of what video games can bring to the table when done correctly when done with care and with done with the creators that made it initially right a lot of these adaptions come out and they don't always work and part of it is because the original creators are not even attached to it neil Druckmann is here he's on the podcast he's writing he's part of the creative process i love that for them man and i think it really showed uh throughout the tv show so yes i absolutely think this is the best video game adaption and i'm looking forward to future seasons of the last of us
1: yeah it, it helps that it's an easy bar to clear too you know video game adaptations have it not been great bar. it's a very easy bar to clear but i think what what's key and important is the fact that in my opinion the last of us is the it's probably the best video game narrative ever that's been created it, it's it's it's, it's really astounding what they can achieve on an emotional level, complexity, you know, and all of those mm-hmm. different different things that you feel with the characters. And so to translate that to live action, in which you're mostly going to follow one-to-one, it's not easy to do that at all. It's actually quite difficult, probably even more difficult than the game itself in trying to to, to establish that. But to have su- source material that is already 10 out of 10 cannot mm-hmm. hurt you. You know, that that's a great place to start. And so coming into here, we, we have talked about, you know, the fact that Many video game adaptations haven't really adapted things. They, they they are the same in name, but never the same in story. Because, like, mm. there's no real Sonic story. Not really. There's not really a Detective Pikachu story. Not really. You know, mm. there have been a couple of cases. I, I I feel like the Uncharted movie weirdly went into different directions that they didn't have to go. <laughs> um, they could have just followed the game for, and they, they chose not to. But here, this is one of the only examples as, as it relates to video game adaptations where you are following the story. And so it's almost it's almost in its own lane at this point. And I hope we do get to see more of this. We know the God of War series will be coming in a few years. The pressure is on for them to deliver and to deliver in a big, big way, because this is beyond a quality level. And just like what we adore and admire about the show, this has become a phenomenon for HBO. There, there, There is there is really no other show out there that's competing with The Last of Us in terms of viewership and the, 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 the attention that it's getting. It's it's huge. You know, it's becoming like their new their new tempole, their new flagship show that they're going to move forward with and so it's reassuring to know that Craig Mazin Neil Druckmann they both confirm part two of the game will be split over multiple seasons they won't confirm how many seasons we'll have to wait and see but it won't end with season two they're going to have to at least go to three seasons potentially even more depending on how ambitious that they get but overall this first season man I just got to give hand claps all around for the most part I thought it was amazing the first two acts which means the first six episodes are the strongest. I think the last three episodes Mm -hmm. lost a little bit of the scene, but by and large, when I watch this as a product from beginning to end, when I go back and revisit this, whenever that will be, I think it's going to be an amazing watch and it's going to, it's going to bring back all those emotions and all those feelings that I have about this particular IP in general. And, they just—they deserve all the credit credit in the world for bringing this to life and doing it in such a faithful way, in such a loving way, with all the people that needed to be there to make sure that most people, I think, will walk away feeling satisfied with this whole experience. So, folks, those are our thoughts on the season finale and the entire season of The Last of Us. If you've checked out any of these recaps in these episodes, definitely hit us up and let us know. Let us know what you think. Let's transition to the news of the week. We got a few quick items. Let's burn through these and just talk about them really quickly. First up. Bob Iger is talking about Marvel and the state of Marvel and where things are going to go. We've been kind of talking about this for a few weeks, just like where Marvel is, the fact that they're sort of reducing the amount of things that they're not only producing, but also releasing at any given time, just to scale back a little bit on the amount of the amount of products, shows and TVs that were TV shows um, and movies that we're getting every year. Um, He just recently talked at at a conference about What he envisions is the future of Marvel. I want to read a couple of quick quotes because I think they're actually quite telling about what the MCU will look like in the next few years. He says, quote, What we have to look at in Marvel is not necessarily the volume of Marvel stories we're telling, but how many times we go back to the well on certain characters. Sequels typically work well for us. Do you need a third and a fourth, for instance, or is it time to turn to other characters? He continues on to say, quote, I think, we ha- I think we just have to look at the characters and stories we're mining. If you look at the trajectory of Marvel in the next five years, there will be a lot of newness. We're going to turn back to the Avengers franchise with a whole new set of Avengers, for example, end quote. So he said a couple of key things there. First, he says, hey, maybe we don't need to do a third and fourth movie for some of these characters. We don't always have to do trilogies or quadrilogies, mm-hmm. however you want to call them. Notably, we got a fourth Thor movie. We just got a third Ant-Man movie. They were talking about a fourth Ant-Man movie, possibly. Seems like that that might be a question mark. He then goes on to say that there's going to be all new Avengers by the time Avengers Kang Dynasty and Secret Wars rolls around. I think we sort of expected that, but it feels like it's etched in stone and confirmed. Like It's going to be an all new lineup. Don't expect to see necessarily the legacy characters that we've grown accustomed to accustomed to over the past 10 or 15 years, it's gonna be a whole new look and feel for this team. What do you think about that? What do you think about the fact that you know maybe we won't do sequels for some of these characters and the fact that the Avengers are just gonna look completely different than what we've seen in the past?
2: yeah, i I think I've always been of at least somewhat of a similar mind when it comes to 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 sequels. Um I think it was pretty important to establish those early characters in the Infinity Saga. Um, but now I think moving into, uh, uh, you know, a new phase in which a lot of what we have has already been established. I I, I think I agree There doesn't always have to be a sequel depending on the character. Um, I, I do think when he says this, he is like staring into Thor love and thunders eyes (laughs) where he's like, did we have to do that? I'm pretty sure that's what he's talking about when he says that. Um, and you know, sometimes I wonder the same thing. Like, did we have to have that Thor? Could we have had, I don't know, another Avenger that's going to be present? (laughs) Could we have done another movie for them? Or could we have, I don't know. I feel like he's, he's, I like how he's asking a question versus him actually presenting a statement. Because to me, that means he, the wheels are turning in Bob Iger's mind, right? There's, there's something there that I think they're trying to figure out and eventually they're going to regurgitate the result of that. So I actually love that he asked that um, in the form of a, of, of a question. And also I think when it comes to what the new Avengers looks like, right. And, and what quote unquote the newness looks like. I think that of course was a given, but I think what was also was not being said is how does that feel? Right. How does, how does, um, let's say, how does Sam, look different now that he's Captain America that's going to feel way different than than, than having our old Captain America we have Letitia Wright as Black Panther now that's going to look way different than when Chadwick Boseman entered in the Civil War and I think you know again a lot of it is obvious but I think he's also talking about the feel like what is what is really the Avengers going to be that's that's the newness every character name isn't going to be different Thor is still going to be the name Incredible Hulk is probably going to still be a name but what does that feel like? And I think that's part of what he's talking about. I like I like this train of thought. I like that he's actually being challenged to think of these things because this is something that we talk about all the time. <laughs> both of these both of these uh bullet points is something that we talk about all the time. So yeah, I really like that he's just bringing that stuff up.
1: I will point out I find it interesting that he said this after he just greenlit a fifth Toy Story movie and a third Frozen movie. I just I just want to make note of that uh that being said this stuff isn't all that surprising to me but what i I guess i feel of two minds about it because the avengers aspect the fact that it's going to be an entirely new team that that is sort of a given and i guess it's fine but i'm also i've been i've just been worried about all of this because we, we talked about with quantumania in our review the fact that you know this phase and phase five or excuse me actually phase four um did not close with an Avengers movie. And we're typically accustomed to mm. the phases sort of ending with Avengers movies. By the time we get to Endgame, we're so connected to Tony Stark and Steve Rogers and Natasha Romanoff and Bruce Banner and Thor and and, and, and Clint Barton. Like we're so connected to them because we had so many movies with them. We had yeah. multiple Avengers movies with them at that. That's and true. we don't have that anymore. We don't we don't have multiple Avengers movies leading into Kang Dynasty or Secret Wars. Like they have shifted their strategy. So Whatever the new Avengers lineup is going to be, that's the first time that they're going to be presented. But this is also simultaneously the end, quote unquote, of the saga. So it's going to be the big capper, similarly to Infinity War and Endgame. Are we emotionally supposed to feel the same thing that we felt by the time Endgame rolled around that we're going to feel with Mm -hmm. Secret Wars? Doesn't feel that way right now. I mean, unless you're going back to the well and bringing Tony Stark back, getting Robert Downey Jr. another 50 mil to come back and cameo. I mean, I just don't understand how we're (laughs) going to feel that same that same emotional weight that we felt to those initial original Avengers that we'll mm-hmm. potentially try to establish with this new lineup. So I I get I get what he's saying, but I don't I don't know I don't know if it's the right thing to do. We won't really know until we do see those movies. But it feels it feels like it might be treading into some potentially disappointing territory. I will say, and and the sequels the sequels is kind of in the same I'm kind of in the same vein with that. Like yeah, Thor four was not it didn't work. It just didn't work flat out. It just wasn't it. But again, going back to the original Infinity Saga, I mean, the reason that we got so closely connected to those characters, three Captain America movies will do that to you. Three Iron Man movies will do that to you. I think think you have to spend time with these people in order to feel that. And we haven't Mm -hmm. spent time significantly with anybody except Wong, who's like showed up all the time. (laughs) But like, how much time have we spent with Shang-Chi? How much time have we spent with She-Hulk or with you know i mean any anybody in this in this new iteration i mean i i just i'm just worried about that that's the biggest thing that i'm worried about it'll look great it'll be big it'll be it'll be you know the stakes will be higher than they've ever been the cast will be Mm -hmm. huge it's going to feel like an avengers movie but are we going to actually care about who's a part of this team in this lineup and i think if you don't have stories that can sort of contribute to that that might cause a problem but Mm -hmm. perhaps they have a creative way to figure that out and we'll see what that looks like but in other Marvel news, we just found out something maybe somewhat shocking in the fact that John Bernthal himself is returning as Frank Castle, a.k.a. The Punisher, and he's going to be returning in the Daredevil Born Again series being produced by Marvel Studios for Disney+. Plus. That series is slated to hit next spring, likely is going to move, just considering all things. It's filming right now. They actually just started production in New York this week. This series also is gonna have an 18-episode first season, so it's gonna be long as hell. They're gonna be filming this all year, like literally all year. They're probably gonna be filming until the series premieres on Disney Plus, even through the premiere. They'll probably be filming like six episodes in by the time we get it next year. So it's a lot to do. But John Berthal, big, big character, big role coming back here. There were a lot of questions, question marks. Who are they gonna pull from Marvel Netflix and that that whole defenders universe? Who are they gonna keep out? john berthal notably will be returning but they're not apparently bringing back deborah ann wool or eldon henson who both played foggy wilson and karen page in those series as well and those were beloved characters but the reports are saying that they're not coming back what do you think about john berthal you know stepping back into the role of frank castle and just also the fact that maybe some of those other characters we loved in that in that series just might not be returning here
2: Man, John Bernthal coming back. Great, 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 great news. (laughs) It's one of those things where the Punisher is, um, he's not a small character in Marvel. A lot of people know the Punisher. A lot of people know the name. Even if they haven't seen or read anything Punisher, they know who the Punisher is. He's not like, the Punisher is not equivalent to America Chavez. You know what I'm saying? Like (laughs) people definitely know who the Punisher is. And I think this is an important uh, character to bring back to somewhat connect people the, what we seen from kingpin uh, you know what i mean we had we kind of we side-eye in it we have to side-eye it um and i think in the same way until i see something concrete i have to side-eye john Berthall a little bit this is the punisher we're talking about this dude cracks skulls open and uses guns and the most this needs to be tvma things that you've ever seen and so i have to side-eye it until i get some a little bit of 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 you know, material to go off of. But it's good news because John Bernthal is returning as the punisher. And I think that's a W still across the board. As much as I have to side eye it. So I'm very excited about that. As far as uh Karen Page in in Foggy Wilson, man, I love Deborah Ann Wall. I thought she was a tremendous part uh of of the series. Same same with Foggy man. I think they I don't I, I'm not gonna lie. Without them it is going to feel a little weird. Just a little weird. Cause they really were Important characters. Like Foggy is just I don't he's always been part of the Daredevil story, you know, he's always been in there. Um I I I see why they would maybe get rid of them in in something like Daredevil. It's literally called Born Again. You know what I mean? But she's Karen Page is important to that comic story. Like, if you know about Born Again, she's like she's very important. So I'm trying to figure out why exactly she's not here, cause it's not even like you had to use them a ton, but for them not to be present at all, especially when it feels like you're trying to connect them with John Berthold's Punisher, feels a little weird, I will say. It feels, it feels a little off to me. So I have to see where they, where they run with that and why they're not present. Maybe there's something in the show I don't know about, especially given 18 episodes. Those are other characters you can focus on a little bit. That enhances the story of Daredevil. They've always been like that. And without them, I don't know. I, I have to see it to really understand what they're going for.
1: I think that that's what's probably going to happen, actually, because like two months ago or three months ago, John Barthaw was talking about the fact that he hadn't got a call from Disney and he was not Mm -hmm. slated to be in the show. Like people were already asking him, like, are you going to come back as Punisher? And he's like, well, you know, I don't want to come back down to a neutered version of the character, some watered down version. Like I want to stay true to what he was established as, which kind of gives me faith that they might lean into that. I really hope that they do because you, you can't really achieve that character without, you know, I, for lack of a better term, being hardcore with him. He has to be violent and, and you have yeah. to like lean completely into that. So right now, they might not be in it, the characters of Karen Page and Foggy Nelson, but that might not be the case in two months. Again, 18 episodes is a lot and I always thought that when they announced that this was going to be 18 episodes, I figured mm-hmm. like, oh, they're bringing everybody back. Maybe not everybody. everybody. Like it's, it's probably not going to be like, I don't know, my culture seems like he really is, like, moved on. You know, I don't know if they'll do that. <laughs> but I feel like they're gonna go back to the well on a lot of those Marvel Netflix characters as a way to introduce that universe, that pocket of this universe again. Because 18, that's a lot. Especially for, like, a, a premium Disney Plus Marvel series. We that That is literally, like, doubling or tripling, actually, what they've typically done with these six-episode series. So that's a lot of material to draw out and fill over the course of a week-to-week season one. So we'll have to see. But I think... I think eventually we'll probably hear something in the way of those characters returning, but Mm -hmm. we'll stand by and check it out. In other news, we just found out that two Star Wars movies have recently gotten shelved. Projects that were coming and slated to come from both Kevin Feige, president of Marvel Studios, and Patty Jenkins, director of the Wonder Woman franchise, who we've been back and forth about her Star Wars movies so many times now. I'm just kind of confused, but apparently they are both officially put to rest. I think that this is... Again, going back to a lot of the conversations that Bob Iger, current CEO, is having about the state of his company and the quality and and, and, the, and the control of what they're trying to produce and just the, the output, he talked a lot about Marvel and slowing down there, but Star Wars is no exception. And I think that this is a direct result of that, the fact that they have just taken these movies and decided to just completely shelve them. Kevin Feige already had somebody writing his Star Wars movie. I think he had Michael Waldron writing his movie but that's going to be put to the side and then that rogue squadron movie that was uh, confirmed with a whole video and then low-key it was like taken off the release schedule but then patty jenkins said like oh no we're still developing it like once she got booted from warner brothers now it's like officially dead i guess and so two movies off the table we have no star wars movies technically slated right now apparently taika waititi is still developing something also um What's the guy from Watchmen who developed that show? He's working on something. Um, they're 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 apparently you know oh, working on uh, another. Oh, Damon Lindelof. Damon Lindelof. That's something that's that's sort of rumored to be in development. I mean, just overall thoughts on the state of Star Wars movies. The fact that there's just like nothing on the horizon in in the immediate future.
2: Very simple, man. It's disappointing. We we a lot of us live and breathe Star Wars because of the movies. Sure, TV shows are doing what they're doing now, but. Man, that, that that's where the excitement for me comes from the most. When a Star Wars movie... I will, I'm will i telling y'all, Episode 7, before it came out, I don't think I played a trailer as much in my life. Not a one trailer. I don't think I played any Marvel trailers as much as I played Star Wars Episode 7, bro. I was so excited. And so I'm just looking for that excitement again in the Star Wars franchise. I'm really hoping they get it together. Patty Jenkins cannot buy a win. I really am rooting for Patty Jenkins, man. She yeah she's a she that's somebody who's in limbo right now all her movies are getting canceled like how can you possibly have faith in hollywood (laughs) if everything that you're trying to do is getting axed and canceled man from two big studios at that in uh warner brothers and then disney it's like damn like can can i live like can i do something um worth of substance so i really feel bad for patty jenkins for sure not so much kevin feige he's he's gonna be kevin feige he's fine i'm sure with anything going on there but i really do feel bad for patty jenkins
1: yeah, it's a tough beat for her for sure. She she's lost a lot in these past couple of months. Kevin Feige should be focusing on Marvel. Not to say that he can't achieve something with Star Wars. I know that that's a huge passion for him. I think he's a bigger Star Wars fan than he is a Marvel Comics fan. But just with the way things are going now, like they need his guidance and his vision, like at the top mm-hmm. of the ship, like steering this in the right direction, especially with the next four or five years. Um, I, I I think you know initially I was disappointed by this, but I'm also just like, well, I'd rather get one good one. As opposed to four mediocre ones. Now, you Absolutely. know, Taika, Taika Waititi, I like him as a director, but coming off Door Eleven Love and Thunder, he, he kind of has some stuff to prove, so I don't know what his movie's even going to be, and I don't know if his sensibilities work with Star Wars. A lot of question marks with that. Damon Lindelof, I have definitely more faith in that project and whatever that looks like and is going to be, but we just don't know. We just don't know at this point. You want to see Star Wars at the movies, yes, and the TV has been about 50-50 for me. Some great results and some pretty mediocre results, but they they should focus on getting it right and so if it takes just one great movie and that's what they're going to focus on and that's going to be the only thing we see in the next i don't know three years then Mm -hmm. so be it i'll take that one as opposed to a lot of mediocre stuff coming out so we'll have to see and in our last news item we found out literally as we were watching scream six by the way jenna ortega is already negotiating her next role she's rumored to be in tim burton's beetlejuice 2 that's right they're going to make a sequel to the original beetlejuice film She's apparently circling a role to be a part of that movie. She will allegedly be playing Winona Ryder's daughter in the film as that character. They're also talking about Michael Keaton coming back to play the titular role, which you absolutely have to do and get him back in the role of Beetlejuice. But this is another legacy sequel that it looks like they are moving forward with. It looks like it's going to be a go. And Jenna Ortega couldn't get any hotter right now. She's fresh off of Scream 6. She just hosted SNL, did a pretty decent job there. So everything is just going in her direction. What do you think about this news, and are you excited?
2: Do we know if Winona Ryder is going to be in the movie herself? Do we know that they yet? have
1: not confirmed it? Rumors, but I think that's going to be the hmm. toughest. That might be the toughest one to get out of anybody. Hmm. Um, but she, you know, she's been doing stuff with Stranger Things, so it seems like she's willing to to hop back in that sandbox.
2: Yeah, man, I I, I really like this. I know we've been going through a lot of se- reboots and sequels and. This one just feels right with the work that Anna that Jenna Ortega has been doing, man, between Wednesday and X, and this really is she's the horror queen right now. Nobody to me is is topping her. It's it's like it's like her and Mia Goth. <laughs> it's like Jenna Ortega and Mia Goth are the horror queens right now, man. Nobody can't tell them anything. Not only that, though, but Michael Keaton continues to just just work. You know, we know he's in the flash. We know, um, and now we know that he's he's, he's coming back as, as Beetlejuice, man. I think it's a really cool thing to possibly do. Not only that, but this film is such a staple that it's another one of those examples where, like, kids don't really know, probably know much about Beetlejuice, but they might buy into Jenna Ortega in a Beetlejuice sequel, you know, or, or reboot or whatever you want to call it. And so I think it's a good idea, man. I really like Beetlejuice. I love Michael Keaton. I love Jenna Ortega. Uh, to me, the pieces are just aligning for this to be a decent project. Um, and it, it sounds like they might have something on the horizon. So we'll have to see what they produce with this.
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, the pieces are in play. Beetlejuice is, is definitely beloved by by certain demographics. It's turned into, you know, some somewhat of a semi-phenomenon over the years. It's just grown and grown as, as the audience has grown up. I think a lot of people who grew up with that movie still have a very fine place for it. It did really, really well on cable. There were so many reruns of Beetlejuice. Growing up all the time, mm-hmm. you know, they, they turned it into a Broadway play. I checked that out a few years ago. That was pretty decent, very faithful to the movie. And so to come back to this world, I mean, Tim Burton is also in a moment right now. His success with Wednesday cannot be cannot be mm-hmm. understated because he was on a he was on a cold streak for a long time there. But now, like with Wednesday, he's kind of found his mojo. So. They're just going to try to steamroll that right into right into this Beetlejuice sequel, and he's going to bring along, you know, the person that 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 kind of gave him the the golden statue with Jenna Ortega. She she is literally just on top of the world right now, picking all the right roles. I just hope that she does not get shoehorned into this lane. It's a very specific lane she's doing, yeah. and she's doing it mm-hmm. magnificently. But if you are not careful enough. It can become a thing that can be a hindrance. And I don't want that for her. She mm-hmm. she will at a certain point Absolutely. need to, I think, expand and, and, and do some different things that are that are going against what we've seen and, and grown accustomed to her doing over the past few years. But I think she will. It seems like she has a very, very smart head on her shoulders and she has all the right decision makers around her to get her in the right in the right direction but for right now it's, it's a great move and i think it's going to be hopefully a, a big thing when it comes out but Time folks with all that said with all of that out of the way that's all we have for this week's episode of two black nurse thank you again for tuning into another podcast we will of course be back next week because we have to talk about the latest film from dc we're going to exclusively be talking about Shazam Fury of the Gods that's right the sequel to the 2019 hit family superhero comedy will be dropping in theaters this upcoming weekend we're going to go check that out and be back next week to review and break down that film with all the nitty gritty details we're going to do a deep dive on all the characters so definitely check that film out this weekend and come back and listen to our spoiler filled conversation plenty to look forward to but until then we will see y'all next time
2: yes sir we are Audi 5000 please check out our 2 Black Panthers forever collection at 2 Black Nerds i like a... Happy Woman's History Month. And remember, always bet on black. Appreciate y'all. Love y'all. Thank you for listening to another episode of Two Black Nerds. Where we're too Two Black, Two nerdy. nerdy. we out y'all.
0: the fist fight. Out. Kill your drama. Well. We kill you motherfucking ants with a sledgehammer. Don't let me do it to your gunny, because I overdo it. So you won't confuse it with just rap music. ROC. We run in this rap shit. M Easy. We run in this rap shit. The Broad Street Bully. We run in this rap shit. You zipped Up in plastic when it happens, that's it.